hi everybody! Welcome to Ornate Stairwells. I'm Autumn. I'm joined as always by Nia. Hi, I'm Neve, and I had to tell you twice that it's a spritz and not an old-fashioned. <laughs> we're drinking, we're polishing off the uh, some cocktails, so forgive us if you can hear one gigantic ice cube. Mukbang, mukbang stairwells. The thing is, when you tilt it back and then you do it, it's like impossible not to have it just clatter. Yeah. I, I, it's satisfying. I'm sure the listeners are fucking annoyed right now, yeah. but the good news is that we're almost done. I've got, like, one more sip here. Um... Anyway, this is a movie podcast. We talk about movies. Segment one, we're going to be talking about all the other movies we've watched. Segment two, um, we'll be talking about Picnic at Hanging Rock, the 1975 film directed by Peter Weir. Um, and then uh, you'll hear some outro music, and then you'll hear the non-homophobia zone if you just want to, you know, catch up on the goings-on of our lives. Um, some conversation about TikTok and, and, and more cock. Not like that. The other way. Yeah. <laughs> MMO M MMO Yeah MMO cock Wait no I fucked it up <laughs> Anyway um, Can you adjust the you, title on here? It's oh, bothering yeah. me. <laughs> Wait, is it the mask? Batman Batman oh, Mask Batman. of the Phantasm <laughs> Um so yeah, uh look at the spreadsheet. I'm up first for movies to talk about. Yeah. I mean both of your movies are movies that you're asking about another yes. podcast. Yes. So I watched like I have not been I've not been super movie mode. I can feel movie mode coming back, but this week I had to watch two movie three movies for podcasts. Uh, and also I worked 41 hours at work this week. So <laughs> um, but yeah, so my first movie to talk about briefly is Batman Mask of the Phantasm. If you want to hear us talk about that more, you can go Support the podcast on Patreon for a dollar, and you can hear that episode in the Patreon feed, or you can wait till next week, um, and uh, exportaudio slash Batman will have that episode there. Why wait? Anyway, um, I guess no matter where you're listening to this... Yeah, it's going to be... It, like This just comes out, out the day after that podcast does, regardless so, yeah. of what feed. I was going to point this out, but... I got there. <clears throat> Math degree. But if you're in the free feed, you sh- still should join the Patreon. Yeah, you know what? Actually, n- I, li- I lied to you just now. Batman Mask of the Phantasm is only in the Patreon feed. You must give me your money. That- that's a joke. I wouldn't do that to you. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, yeah, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, it's the best Batman movie. It is the best part of... It is like the dessert of watching this Batman has been a very up-and-down experience for us. Uh, Batman the Animated Series... If if folks don't listen to Gotham City Limits, um, the Animated Series is like a beloved, highly revered show for very good reason. Because when it's good, there's nothing better. And uh, when it comes to animated Western shows in 1992... Even with all the down episodes of this show, it is still absolutely outclasses everything else that was on the air at the time, you know? Yeah. But, that said, revisiting it, you know, 30 years removed, there we've been having a lot of problems with Batman the Animated Series. There's a lot of stupid bullshit, there's a lot of misogyny, there's a lot of, like, this episode just doesn't work on a pure, like, the plot just feels like it's spinning its wheels for 15 minutes, you know? Um, There's been a lot of problems with the animated series. The good stuff is good. The bad stuff is bad. 
Um, Mask of the Phantasm, there's not a single bad second of that movie. It's a 75-minute movie. It's basically perfect. It's the best Batman movie. It's maybe the best Batman story, like comics, movies, whatever medium you want to talk about. Like, Mask of the Phantasm is like heavyweight champion of the world. Um, it's fucking incredible, dude. Uh, and Em and I get into it on the show. Um, I love Mask of the Phantasm so much. The, the thing is, <laughs> I said all that, and then I just remembered... The thing that Em and I talked about very briefly on that show is that I always call Mask of the Phantasm the best Batman movie. And then I remember, I might like Return of the Joker better. I might like Batman Beyond Return of the Joker a little bit better than Mask of the Phantasm. So we'll get there at some point on the podcast. Um, but yeah, um, as far as stairs go, I don't really recall any stairs in Mask of the Phantasm. Um... I wasn't keeping an eye out for them because I, I was in Gotham City Limits brain and not movie brain, you know? So I could have missed them. But I feel like I am pretty much a Pavlov's dog when it comes to spotting stairs in media properties now to where yeah. I read books and I'm like, stairs. So I feel like I would have remembered. <clears throat> yeah. I, do, I don't want to give it an F unfairly, but I don't really remember any stairs, so. Okay. Well... I figured I would follow up before you talk about your other movie mm-hmm. with another uh, movie that's ostensibly for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Super Mario Brothers even more just for kids. Yeah, Super Mario, like Batman Mask of the Phantasm is like one of those movies that's like, kids can watch this, but I think it's like a movie for adults, you know, in some way. Uh, Super Mario Bros. movie, I gather, is just a movie for children. Yeah. Um, which is... I feel like there's been, like, a few, like, I talked about, I think, Sonic also being this, where, like, there's obviously stuff in there for adults as well, but, like, primarily it's just, like, a funny, light adventure um, in a way that is just, like, when I'm trying to watch stuff with my my toddler, so much nicer than the Pixar stuff that's, like, mostly for middle-aged dads right. who are having a, like, midlife crisis about, like, parenthood. Yeah. Or something. Like Shrek 4. Yeah. Uh, Shrek 4 is fine with this. It's Shrek 3 that's really egregious about it. Um, That makes sense, because that's Shrek the 3rd. Mm-hmm. Because he's Shrek Jr., and yeah, then he has yeah. a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway, um, I thought it was fine, the Super Mario Brothers movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it is now my kid's favorite movie. So does that mean you get to watch it like 40 more times? Probably. Your your kid, lots of kids I know, like my nephews and nieces, like like when my niece first saw Frozen, Frozen was played in that household two or three times a day for about a year, you know? And like sometimes other movies were watched, but like my niece, when she had that movie she liked when she was four, she just watched that movie all the time. Your kid has not gotten to that with movies. They've gotten to that with games. They've gotten to that with a couple shows. Yeah. I haven't seen them do that with movies yet. Yeah. Could happen. I feel like the most was kind of Winnie the Pooh, but that was also really fueled by, like, I think us all being home because of, like, COVID or whatever. Yeah, you were all yeah. sick, I think, when, yeah. Um. Yeah. But um, it's bizarre. I was... Like, Emily and I were watching it, and we grew up in an age where we, like, watched the old Super Mario Brothers movie. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, 
and like I guess especially just because of like this also being an adaptation of Super Mario Brothers it like one emphasizes like what has happened to the franchise overall as well as like what doing a, a adaptation of an IP is now because mm-hmm. nobody would even beyond like the other stuff that has happened. I'm, I, I guess I'll break it out into the first part. One is that like when the super Mario brothers movie is made, like when I was a kid, it was like an NES game, mm-hmm. you know? And like, there just wasn't graphical fidelity. So there wasn't like an established visual language <clears throat> in quite the, the same way. So many people, when I was coming up online, made fun of the Mario movie for being like a bad adaptation. And I think a thing that gets lost is like, what were you fucking adapting? Yeah. <laughs> um, like there was like no real plot in those games. You were adapting. Even, like, there, there continues to not be that much plot in Mario games, mm. but there's more now than there was on the NES. Yes. And like, what were you fucking adapting? Like instruction manuals, like comics that ran in Nintendo Power. Th- yeah. That Super Mario comic that ran in Nintendo Power actually slaps. Um, and so what, what you get is this thing that's like very of its time, but it is also like taking the ideas of like the setting of Mario more so than like the direct aesthetics mm-hmm. and then just doing stuff with it. Like you got a two plumbers who are brothers. They got, they're fighting some guy named Bowser who, uh, you know, is a dinosaur somehow. Mm-hmm. And you're just like figuring out how to make all that work, mm-hmm. you know? Um, is Dennis Hopper in that movie? Yeah. Right. Um, whereas this, one, there's just, like, a very established, like, visual language and iconography and everything for, for Mario now. Mm. But also the adaptation of IPs have become, like, so much more focused on, like, maintaining the integrity of the IP in a way that I feel like older adaptations yeah. were not as, like, yeah. directly, uh, constantly, like concerned with and so this movie like has to like have plot points to explain like mechanics of the video game Mm -hmm. like power-ups and things right as like a part of the story Mm -hmm. um it's also interesting because this is a movie coming out in 2023 and so one of the characters that i think is the, the the like all all most of the characters in the movie are like on model to what's in the game mm-hmm. except except princess peach who just extremely has the face that like all animated female characters have yeah like her face is just and it's not that different than what's in the game but it's notably different in a way that's just like this is how so many not the not the disney face but like kind of but it's a little bit more in like the little pixar um, the Trans Hotel Transylvania has that sort of vibe to me. Oh yeah, um, this is this is big time Hotel Transylvania. Yeah, it's the eyes. It's yeah. the eyes, and also like everything's just like a little more like like the cheeks are just a little too like pulled out. Yeah, you know, yes. the, the like my, the like lips are like a little more pouty or something. Well, and she's got like times. the like in this. She's got like the arm on the hip, which is like a little more sassy than like yeah. Nintendo Plazer, you know? Yeah. And so this is the big thing is one, she's animated slightly differently in a way where it's, I'm just convinced that they have like four models at top, like max for most women in animated movies. Oh, that that's they just, 
changed slightly. Yeah. And so they just slightly adapt, adapted this from the Hotel Transylvania girl or whatever. Who who made this movie? Is it Illumination? Is it... Um, Illumination with Universal Pictures, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, so it is Illumination. Okay, I'm going to look at what else Illumination's made. All I know is the, the Minions movies and whatever. You can keep talking. Um, but, and so the other thing that happens is, uh... It's 2023, and with the kind of adults who go and watch kids' movies oh, these days. Oh, no! What? I, I just know what you're going to say. You can't have a story where uh-huh. the, the princess uh-huh. is uh-huh. in the castle and is like locked up, and they have to save her. Now, obviously, this becomes a point at a certain point. Like The princess gets kidnapped, but it is at the wedding at that point because Bowser wants to you know, marry Princess Peach or whatever. Right. But the person who, for the most of the movie, they are trying to save, who has been captured and is in the like Bowser's castle, is Luigi. And there's a whole part at the beginning where Princess Peach is such a badass and she can do the whole like yeah. uh, obstacle course with all the different things I, that are from the games and she can, knows all the yeah. power-ups. Yeah. And Mario does it and like you have this long training montage of her trying to get Mario to figure out how to like do play Mario. But she's right. just an expert at it. Right. Yeah. I, 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 and so they, they, she's just... In a way where it's like... Yeah, is, the, the base plot of Mario is like uh, with this ingrained like misogyny of like women are uh, damsels who need to be rescued but also the only way that you can uh try to adapt that now is you have to go in the f- complete opposite direction and make her the most badass girl boss yes this is this is why i said oh no because i the moment you mentioned movie going audiences in 2023 i i, I instantly understood that you have to transform girl boss like you have to the 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 irony is the irony is that like in recognizing societally that like the damsel in distress is like a bad trope that like like puts women into this certain mold we have now created a new mold yeah. that all women must fit into yeah <laughs> it's just a it's a different mold but it is still all women yeah. must be girl boss and it is still the girl boss who's really cool and badass and better than the guy for most of the movie but at the very end she's going to get kidnapped and then the schlubby everyman guy is still going to save her at the very end right right cuz they still want to do their trope right <laughs> and here like just by the nature of it being mario and the nature of like so much stuff like trying to be on the IP other than the voice acting. Uh-huh. <laughs> but so much of it is like, this is like what the IP is, right? Uh-huh. This is what Mario is. We're trying to do that. They have to like radically deviate in this one way because that's just what you have to do with female characters in movies now, but also do the thing that they always do with those girl boss characters, which is they do still make them kidnapped at the very end and get saved by the schlubby everyman. The, the irony, played by Chris Pat. The irony is that like, in the Mario franchise, you have examples of how to do this better. Yeah. In Thousand Year Door, you have... I don't know why they didn't pull from, like, Paper Mario and, like, Mario RPG stuff here. Like, because, like, in Thousand Year Door, Mario is working toward saving Princess Peach, and Princess Peach, who has been kidnapped, is working toward escaping. Like, you can just do that. You yeah. can tweak that little thing. You can... You can kidnap princess peach and then have her like fold her arms and be like really kidnapping in 2023 and then she like gets out on her own like you can yeah <laughs> whatever anyway whatever. most of the voice acting is extremely phoned in um 
as always, they get actors to do a voice actor's job and most actors are not going to do actual voice acting. And so it's just fucking Chris Pratt doing Chris Pratt. Yeah. And it's uh, Anya Taylor-Joy or I think Anya. I know it's Anya, but I forget her. Um, I think you have it, Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah. Um, you know, just doing her voice as yeah. Princess Peach. Charlie Day is Luigi. Yeah. Charlie Day is like kind of trying to do a little bit of an Italian thing, but it still is just Charlie Day. But so here's the thing. Jack Black. Yeah. Jack Black is doing a Bowser voice. Yes. My man, Jack Black, he is doing the work. <laughs> the he thing- is not a voice actor, but he is going to try. Yes. He's going to like actually try in a way that nobody else in this cast is. That's a- Where you listen to it and you're like, I know this is Jack Black, but also if I didn't know this was Jack Black, I, I'd probably be like, who's doing this voice? I feel like when I was young, when I was very young... Jack Black was, like, in, culturally. You yeah. know, at the height of Tenacious D. Obviously, School of Rock is, like, a, is a classic. And then I feel like this there was this period of, like, Nacho Libre and, like, people not liking Jack Black and people, like... And uh, Nacho Libre is a terrible fucking movie. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not here to defend the honor of Nacho fucking Libre. <laughs> yeah. But there was this moment where I feel like the culture turned on Jack Black, and now I feel like we're all back in. And I think the thing that's so good about his career is that he didn't change through any of that. The culture changed. The culture went to, we love how earnest this guy is, to we hate how earnest this guy is, to we love how earnest this guy is. Yeah, He has been Jack Black the whole time, and we have come back around, and I really like that about his career. Yeah. Um, so he does a good job of, as Bowser. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed his Bowser. Um, the other funny thing is, I guess, so were, were you here once when my toddler was, so slimes will do this thing where they want to whisper something to you and it's a secret and you can't tell like the other people, like the other uh-huh. adults. It's just for you. Mm. And then you'll like get close and then they'll whisper in your ear and usually they'll say like boo-boo butt or chicken, chicken butt. butt or something like that. Yes. But there was a period of like, it was like roughly a week where you would lean in and they would go, peaches, 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 peaches. <laughs> I did not get any of this. I saw it, you tweet about it, but I did not get this. And it turned out that is from the Mario Brothers movie. Oh. So it, it happened in this movie, and I was like, this is where you got it from. Uh-huh. I didn't know. But I guess there was, like, a music video of Jack Black doing that song okay. that he does. Okay. Um, That was, like, kind of viral, and probably one of my kids, like, teachers at daycare showed. played it or showed yeah, it or something. Yeah. yeah. I've got a question. So how does one get peaches? Could I purchase them in any sort of like container? Um, yeah, there's like they make jarred peaches or any. Or do you want do you want fresh peaches? Because you can get them in like a little like no. plastic. No, 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 no. I don't want I don't want like fresh peaches. Like, could I get like peaches like in a can? Maybe. I guess. <laughs> Who would put them in the can it's though? A, I feel like when you get canned peaches, they like they put like a lot of that syrup, and they're too sweet for me. Who would put them in the can, though? Uh, some sort of operator at, like, a You're no facility. fun. I hate you. <laughs> I wanted you to fucking do the silly little song. <laughs> I wanted you to say that peaches come in a can, they were put there by a man, and you would not. 
fucking play ball with me, and I'm done. We're talking about the two towers now. Um, Tell me about the stairs in Mario. Anyway, I gave him a B. I think the main one that I remember is there's, like, in the Mushroom Kingdom and the, you know, Princess Peach's castle, Mm -hmm. there's, like, these stairs that go up to, like, this big stained glass window that's, like, a portrait of her. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like I just... Nothing like jumped out to me as like this is the stairwell scene, mm-hmm. and also the the action in this movie is like frenetic in a way where I understand why my kid loves it. Uh huh. Um, but like everybody's like moving quickly constantly. Makes sense. So, it's a platformer. Yeah. <laughs> um. What was anyway. that? There was a there was a hard drive article that was actually funny recently that was like Metroidvania fan starts calling platforms Mario Sonics. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, um, so yeah, I'm sure I'll have to watch that movie many more times. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, I legally acquired it in a way where uh, it wasn't for just the 24 hour rental period. Oh, so you know you can buy it for like ten dollars more. Yeah. Um, if, if you wanted to buy it, you could do that. You know that people can't see you winking on a podcast. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> wink. Okay. Well, anyway, I watched The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. If you go to the Patreon or to exportodd.io slash bagend. I was going to do a little thing about oh. uh, there was the other thing that my, my kid's been really obsessed with is watching me play Zelda, uh-huh. uh, where you're trying to get back the sword mm-hmm. to be the, you know, rightful whatever yeah. of Hyrule. And I hear that you watched a movie about something kind of like this. Well, you see, the king is going to return. He hasn't returned yeah, he hasn't yet, yet, but he's on his way. He's returning. Yeah. Um. Man. Aragorn. Anyway, you want to talk about Sister <laughs> No. <laughs> um, I'll talk very briefly. Um, we did, we did uh, The Two Towers for Mordor Movie Night. And the thing that I said on that podcast... Um, that one you do have to be a patron for, right? No, no. No? No. I thought those ones were patron only. No. I think we talked about it at one time, and then we didn't pull the trigger on it. Um, no, so the thing I said on that podcast was that watching The Two Towers, which I had never seen before this week. I had never seen The Two Towers. This felt like my dessert for reading all of Lord of the Rings. Like, obviously, I love Lord of the Rings. But, like, it, like if Lord of the Rings is, like, my three-course meal, it feels like watching The Two Towers is dessert. It feels yeah. like just gorging myself on cake. That movie's fucking amazing. Yeah. It's the Lord of the... It's the fucking Two Towers. It's the... Where is the horse and the rider? Yeah. It's so fucking good. <laughs> um, I mean, it's no Fellowship of the Ring in terms of movies. No, it's way better than the Fellowship of the Ring. Are you fucking kidding me? The book. The book and the movie. The book, The Two Towers, and the movie, The Two Towers, is better than the book, The Fellowship of the Ring, and the book, The Two Towers. Or the movie, Fellowship of the Ring. Madness. For, for, I'm, I'm... It's been a while since I've watched it, but I, I care so much about Frodo and Samwise. That's, like, the heart of Lord of the Rings to me. And I feel like Two Towers, like, because so much of it goes into The Return of the King. Like, yeah. pushes a lot of that out of the movie, and so the movie is lesser for me, because what I care about when I think about Lord of the Rings, more than anything else, 
is Frodo and Samwise and the the like undertaking that they're doing to take the ring. I the an interesting thing that came up on the podcast. After we finished Bag End, I reread Fellowship. And I was gonna reread Two Towers and Return of the King, but I didn't get around to it. Um, um and so when we were watching Fellowship, because I had read it and reread it, as I was watching Fellowship, I felt adaptation brain kicking in so much of like Oh, they took out this, and I, I don't care for that. Oh, they shortened this, and I don't care for that. I felt like I was pushing against all the choices that Peter Jackson was making in Fellowship. Whereas in this movie, I didn't have that reread. I didn't have that freshness. And so, to me, this movie felt more faithful, even if, in discussing it, I realized they totally changed everything about the Ents to be a like largely inferior plotline. You know, yeah. and the Ents are my favorite part of the two towers. I think the Ents are just like this really cool thing. And when I was watching the movie, I was like, this is such a great like adaptation. And then we're talking about it. I'm like, oh, they 100% changed everything about this plot in yeah. a way that I think undermines what the point of the plot was. And similarly, like, because they just decided we're not going to do Frodo's plot, like, like we're just going to push all of Frodo's plot off into the next movie and so Frodo and Faramir just spin their we like spin their wheels doing made up bullshit for forty five yeah. minutes, you know, um, and it's it's weird. Um, I I like I like the scene in Osgiliath. Um, I like <sighs> all the stuff with Gollum is really good, and also Jackson makes a good point um, on the podcast about. Um, all the stuff with Gollum is about how if you treat your slaves nice, that, that that's good. And and the the sort of like adaptation choice that is being made in Two Towers is that they just had to be nicer to their slave and then Gollum wouldn't have betrayed them. Whereas in the books, it's a very muddy, like, you know, ambiguous yeah. sort of deal. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> Well, also, to me, so much of the thing in the books is, like, uh, even Frodo and Sam can only get the ring there. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing that will finally destroy the ring, like, nobody is going to willingly throw it into the fire. Mm-hmm. The only way that it is going to be destroyed is by it, the accident. Yes. Is by having Gollum there, who is so consumed with the greed, um, and will, like... In trying to finally get it in that final moment, topple over into destroying it. This is, and, and the thing about that is that like, this is the thing that Stephen King then makes a whole career out of, because like every Stephen King book then ends with evil undoes itself. And what what is the more perfect evil undoes itself moment in literature than Gollum falling into the fire? Yeah, you know. Well, and to me, I don't because I don't think of Gollum as evil. But I think of like somebody who is like well, fully lost to the the I, greed of the one ring. Yeah, I don't see. I don't think Gollum is evil. Yeah. I think that the ring, in trying to get itself back to Sauron, has created the own like its own tools of destruction. Like yeah. the ring tried to get itself there, and in doing so, undoes itself. You know. Yeah. Um. That's way better than like a. Las Las Vegas getting nuked or whatever in the stand. Yeah. <laughs> um. 
anyway, my my whole like feeling on all of the Lord of the Rings movies, um, I guess like the one, the only exception I have for this is the um, Rankin and Bass Hobbit, which primarily came to me in the form of the vinyl mm-hmm. and not the movie. I don't think I actually watched the movie until after I had read the book. Mm-hmm. So very specifically, I had like this vinyl of the Hobbit. And then I read the books after like reading some Dragonland stuff. I think when I was a kid, I had like gotten that vinyl some, and then my dad read me the Hobbit. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I read Lord of the Rings on my own, but I read the Lord of the Rings on my own before the movies came out, like not by that much, but mm-hmm. enough. So all of the other Lord of the Rings movies that I've ever seen, my like, uh, entire experience of it has been colored by just coming into it being like, especially at that time in my life, like a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Mm-hmm. So, and not in a way where I always made fun of the, cause you know, I was enough in the like Lord of the Rings fandom at the time to encounter these people. I would make fun of the, uh, I referred to them as the Gimli's beard was three shades darker in the book. People, the people who are like very obsessed with like the minuteness of the adaptation. Yeah. But it was still, I was coming to it thinking about how is this adapting like my yeah. favorite books. Yeah. At the time. It, it's interesting. Um, the sort of like long tail of those books being so beloved and those movies being so beloved is not, I, I feel like the cultural like impact of that is not, robust and interesting conversations about how might one adapt a book to the medium of film? What are like the choices that have to be made? Uh, what are the choices that are being made that, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what people talk about. What people talk about is that for the last 20 years, everybody's like, Oh, well you always have to watch. I mean, this is, this is much older received wisdom. Yeah. Like the book is better than the movie. You always have to read the book first because the book is always better than the movie. I always think that's such a dumb little. Yeah. Um, um I've watched it, plenty of movies that are way better than the books they're adapting. Yeah. But it was always this thing of just like, um, I didn't even necessarily fully have that feeling of like, I mean, I, I did think, and I think still think that the books are better than the movies. Uh huh. Yeah, but, I, but not in like the same way that people will sort of offhandedly do this because I do think there are plenty of movies that are better than the thing they're adapting or other yeah. way around and stuff like that. Um, but it was it was specifically like I also think in a in a way that's even for people who are like oh those movies are coming out I'm going to read the Lord of the Rings I'm going to get like the you know books that are all being published then that have the like cover on it which. Mm-hmm. I also had a cover of, I, I think I still have it here. Yeah. Um, cause the original copies I read were just my mm-hmm. like parents copies, but, mm-hmm. um, but all of that is like, you still have a different idea of what any of this is. Like you're reading who Aragorn is and you have Viggo Mortensen in your head. Yes. Even if you haven't like seen those movies before you go to read it, I don't think anybody after those movies comes to Lord of the Rings without having specific images uh-huh. that you just encounter as part of pop. Maybe it's happening now where the movies are old enough. Mm. There's like a generation now who doesn't really have any. That was part of the reason that like I wanted to structure Bag End the way that we did 
where the Hildebrand art features so prominently in um, like episode art and stuff. Um, the we watched all the animated movies first. Um, like part of the part of the and I say I we collectively wanted to have Bag End be a podcast that as best it could as you know. It's four friends showing up and reading a couple chapters. We're not, you know, doing heavy research. We're not doing, you know, just King things where they're going back and they're reading all this archival stuff. We're not doing that. But as best we could, we wanted Bag End to be reflective of there was a time where the Peter Jackson movies did not exist. There was 50 years of Lord of the Rings that did not have this one sort of visual identity and now all Lord of the Rings stuff has been united under that one visual identity. And I like that visual, you know, I like that, but it is sort of the IPification of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, so anyway. even if you do something that's not doing that, it is now a more intentional choice than it once was. Um, you know, I am having a difficult time recalling stairs in the two towers. However, I'm probably going to go ahead and give that bad boy an S. <laughs> I'm just going to assume that there are some S rank stairs in the two towers because, yeah. and, and even if there aren't, there were enough in fellowship of the ring that, you know what? The whole trilogy is just going to get an S because, yeah. because Lord of the ring or, or, or the fellowship of the ring has like four different things that would earn any other movie an S, you know? So whatever. Yeah. Um, um, well, is it time for us to go behind the curtain? Yeah, yeah. Um, watched two erotic thrillers in the Criterion Collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one is still in keeping with this thing that I've noticed with a couple of these that I've watched on the Criterion channel, where it's called an erotic thriller, but basically there's like a sex scene at the very beginning of the movie, and then the rest of it is kind of just a thriller. Mm-hmm. So that was Sister Sister, um, which is not a movie that is doing to me. Like I think Criterion is doing its definition of erotic thriller, where it is a thriller that has erotic scenes in it. Mm-hmm. This is a it is a thriller, and people have sex. Mm-hmm. When I specifically think of erotic thriller, what I'm most often thinking about is the it is like about erotics in some way and like a thriller in that sense. It is about like the kind of edges of danger that exist in human sexuality that people Mm -hmm. put up against. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's always going to be kind of weird about sex in that way. So I really liked sister, sister, but I didn't think it was that much of an erotic thriller. Um, Also, I don't entirely know how to talk about this movie without kind of spoiling things. Uh, so I'm just going to say that right now. Um, I'm not going to like spoil the full ending and stuff, but there's just like premise stuff that doesn't get fully revealed until later on. But the initial opening premise is um, there's these two sisters. Uh, I think they're like parents or dead or something. Um, but they like run this hotel together. That's like an old plantation. Cause this movie is also like very Southern. Um, and so 
it's kind of this remote area. Not a lot of people come to the hotel. Um, and the, the older sister mostly runs it. And the younger sister um, has some sort of mental health issue going on where she's taking medication. Um, she believes that like she sees uh, ghosts or like spirits that she's encountering. Um, and uh, also she like moves too far away from this home she becomes like more unstable, like being in this place where they like grew up or like spent a lot of time is like a thing that helps her stay centered. And so like, they're kind of stuck in this general area. Um, you know, it includes like surrounding like woods and swamp and stuff, but, Mm -hmm. um, really it's like within this area is where she's comfortable. Um, and, there's like the the maintenance guy who comes by sometimes who uh has i think speaks sort of like a you know french inflected like cajun or something uh but etienne is his name um and then there's some people who come to stay uh and most of them leave but one guy stays and continues on um so that's like the basic setup um the movie starts with, and this is the one sex scene, this dream that the younger sister has where uh, this guy is going to have sex with her and, like, you know, starts having sex with her in the bed. And it starts, like, raining through, like, a hole in the ceiling. And then it's just, like, pouring rain inside the house. Um, like, just this, like, very intense, weird scene. And then she, like, wakes up mm-hmm. from it. Um, but when everybody's there, the younger sister <clears throat> tells one of her ghost stories. And it's about, like... um you know, there are all these ghosts that she encountered out in the swamps. Um, and most of the ghosts, like, although she was initially a little bit afraid of them, were friendly, wanted her to play, uh, but also were trying to protect her from Judd. And once she says that name, like, people kind of get a little extra weird and, like, people seem to be a little bit more creeped out. This seems to be around the time when some of the guests are like, we're gonna go find, like, the Comfort Inn in Suites tomorrow and, like, get out of here. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the sister is also slightly weird, but, like, a little bit more calm with it. Um, as it, like, plays out, this is the one big spoiler, but I just feel like I have to, like, kind of talk about what this movie is doing. Um, we learn throughout it that, like, Judd was murdered was or disappeared, presumed murdered. Unclear what happened. Some people think that it was the sister. And throughout the course of it, we learned that it was, but it was specifically like he was going to rape her. Mm-hmm. Um, her younger sister came and like hit him with a rock. And then she, not fully intending to, stabbed him and killed him. Mm. Like the, the older sister then did. And then they like worked together to bury the body. Um, and then somebody wants revenge for this. I'm not going to go into any more detail around that, but that becomes the rest. That's like where it gets full thriller is where you like realize someone's trying to get revenge and stuff. Uh Um, but I thought it was, it was interesting. Um, and I, I enjoyed it even though it was kind of just light on the, like, like it was just like a fun thriller plot. Yeah. Um, but I did enjoy that. I think the movie, sort of tacitly agrees with me that that was a justified murder that like that guy was going to rape her and it was fine for her to kill him <laughs> were you uh, you were in the group chat i was posting in the other day about um she just did one murder like what do we <laughs> yeah oh speaking of she just did one murder can we you sorry this is totally off topic and i apologize 
you added a bunch of movies to the schedule. Can you find some place to fit in Heavenly Creatures? I'd like to talk about that sometime oh, soon. Oh, yeah. Um, um, I've had that on the mind. The, 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 the person I was talking about who just did one murder is one of the characters in <laughs> Heavenly Creatures. You yeah. can just put it in at 97 if you'd like to. Yeah, that's fine. Um, I mean, I might shift it around a little bit. We'll but but we can... The other thing is, uh, I mentioned it recently, and it's one that I've had on the list of movies for us to do at some point. We should do Cruising at some point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I haven't seen Cruising. It's been a while. Because um, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. It's been like 10 years. Um, cruising's, cruising's the fucking cinema, though. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, what I liked about it is, because the, the focal character is the younger sister uh-huh. in this movie. Um, and so there is this little bit of tension around, like, she knows... Um, how much is like the older sister actually trying to protect her and take care of her while she's having these mental health issues or like she starts thinking that maybe the older sister is like drugging her and keeping her there so that she can't tell people about the murder because she knows. Um, and like her having like, but then like, is that a real like actual fear she's having? Or is that like paranoia that she's having? That's like associated with her stuff. Um, in in a way where I, I think like that tension was interesting, like how much does this as like her as a person who needs a caretaker and is thus in this relationship with her sister where her sister has this like power and control over her as a caretaker, how much of that is like um like a healthy relationship versus one where like there's all this room for like um, like, is she actually being protective or is this like a space where she can exploit her younger sister? So, mm. um, and I guess the ending can be vague and depending on how people land on it. But for me thinking she only did one murder and it was a guy who was going to rape her. Um, I think this, the older sister is fine. Personally, <laughs> I think the older sister is fine. <laughs> um, but I enjoyed that one. Um, I give it an A plus. There's like basically one set of stairs in the movie, uh, which is going up to like the upper floor of the hotel. Um, and it has this like red carpet that like sort of goes down the middle, you know, Mm. like it's not like all the way to the edges. Um, and it's not that ornate, but there's some like, there's like pointed scenes where like the one sister standing at the top and there's like stuff at the bottom. Uh, there's stuff around like, you know, levels of the, the, um, home, things like that. So, um, all of that stuff I thought was good, but, uh, so it, it was like not quite an S cause the stairs could have looked nicer, but I think they were used really well in the movie. Yeah. Whereas the next movie is the reverse where there's a lot of really good looking stairs cause it's set in Venice and there's just stairs fucking everywhere. Sure. 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 But Europe. it doesn't really do much with any of the stairs. Mm. There's even some like really fancy stairs that go up to the, the like home of, the, I'm um, go- I'm googling real quick. The next movie you've got here is The Comfort of Strangers by yeah. Paul Schrader. I'm googling because I don't know that I've seen any Paul Schrader movies. You have not seen any Paul Schrader movies. I'm checking. I'm checking. There, it could be that I just forgot that. Oh, that was a Paul Schrader movie. You know. You s- have you seen Raging Bull? Oh, or I wait. forgot that he he. Oh, yes, yeah. I've seen various movies written by Paul Schrader. What are I don't ones know. that he's directed? Let me look. Yes, I've seen a couple movies that he's written because I was a big Scorsese yeah. freak uh, 
at a certain time in my life. Uh, you haven't seen the uh, eighty version, the eighty-two version of Cat People. I have not. Um, I was thinking about that one. You haven't seen Mishima, probably. No. Um. Yeah, maybe you haven't. Uh, any of the any of these? A, I I also when I say I was a Scorsese freak, I was a very specific type of like taxi driver, raging bull, um, uh, yeah. uh, uh, mean streets. I was a I I was I was not as widely watched as I would have liked to have been. You know, uh, yeah. I have not seen the Last Temptation of Christ, which it looks like Paul Schrader wrote. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't believe I've seen any movies that he's directed. Um, anyway, I pulled this up just because I wanted to, to quick reference some stuff. But um, so basically, the the plot of the Comfort of Strangers is there's this uh, British couple who aren't married, but like she has kids from I think like a previous marriage or something. It seems like a kind of serious relationship, but like the passion's kind of gone, and so they decided to go on this. Uh, vacation to Venice to see if they could rekindle that flame a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And like, it seems like sh- the, the woman speaks a little bit of Italian and the, the guy doesn't speak any mm-hmm. um, is the vibe that I get. Um, but, and they're like trying to figure out where to go in Venice. The like uh, concierge suggests this like a bar and they get lost trying to find it. Uh, Cause they want to just take the map and he's like, no, this map stays here. Like, it's very easy, though. You just, and, you know, you go and it's all these, like, stairs and winding alleyways and stuff. So they immediately get lost. Um, And they run into Christopher Walken. um, And he takes them to, like, his bar. And they sit down and Christopher Walken, like, while they're, like, hanging out, does kind of the vibe of, you were talking about that one movie where the, the woman reads the children's story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, um, yeah. What had happened was. Yeah. Christopher Walken gives this long monologue um, that's this kind of bizarre story about when he was a kid. And he's talking about, like, you know, his father was domineering. It was like nobody could get out of bed until he had gotten up and I forget exactly what it was that he was supposed to do, like use the bathroom or something, and then people could get out of bed. Uh, There's all these like things of like when you sat down for a meal, no one could speak until he spoke to you, all these sorts of things. Um, And then recounts like this time where uh, the father was gone for a really long time and the mom was too. And his older sisters went and like played with the makeup, the mom's makeup and dresses and stuff. And then like, you know, we're doing this sort of childhood, like mm. kissing each other and stuff. Right, right, right. Um, and we're like, you know, don't tell anybody about this. And then at dinner, the the dad was just like such a domineering and threatening presence that immediately he spilled like everything that had happened. Uh, you know, his sisters get beaten and everything, and then the sisters mm. uh, do like a nasty. I forget the exact, but it was like a kind of horrible prank uh, on him. Um, then like gets him in trouble with his dad. He's like, you know, I still haven't forgotten my sister. It's like this really long monologue about like basically just this bizarre family life that he grew up in that he's like kind of casually telling is just like, here's just like a, you know, if you want to understand me, you just got to understand like what my family's like. Let me tell you about my dad. Like, right. Right. You right. Know, it's a little bit more. Christopher Walken in particular is a great 
like pull for this this character because of how much I think Christopher Walken can like instantly slide between like kind of seeming like affable and then like weirdly threatening and then just like unsettling or off putting uh-huh. uh, and it's all like in that middle space where it's like just this very like uneasy bizarre conversation to have while you're like spending your first night in Venice. Um, I need to watch more Christopher Walken movies because I feel like my familiarity with him is him past his prime in like the 90s getting like referenced in um, like like being a bit player in Pulp Fiction or whatever. And then, um, you know, him in the 2000s where he is only the parody of Christopher Walken, you know, I would yeah. I need to go watch, you know, like some of the movies where he's just there in earnest you know yeah. well in this movie i think it has like really good um i mean it, two years after that movie he did batman returns unlimited yeah. poontang yeah so like maybe he's really good in this one though. yeah yeah maybe maybe this image i have in my head of like past his prime maybe there's always been the jokey parody character there yeah <laughs> um he i think he just like his performances fall in this space where it can easily be comedy or if you just push it in a certain direction, it becomes like deeply unsettling and creepy. Uh huh. Um, so, and this is like doing it into the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, you know, they continue to, to wander around Venice and like run into him a few times, including like, they just find themselves like at his house. There's a part where he like invites them over and, in a, like a slightly awkward way, they like end up going over to his place and having dinner with his wife. Um, and things just like escalate and get weird. There's a part where like they take a nap there and then the wife comes in and is like, uh, and they like took a nap naked and it's like, you know, I came in and I just watched you for a while. I hope that's okay. And then like, Oh, I, I decided to wash your clothes. Sorry. Like you don't have any clothes right now. And so it's just like very bizarre. And so it's just like the most like uh-huh. intense. It's the, like the, the base premise of this movie is the meme of like, Hey, my wife and I saw you at the bar and you look really interesting. <laughs> um, but like as a horror movie, uh, huh. Where it just, like, continues to escalate and get weirder and weirder. And I think the part that... This is where it, like, really feels like this erotic thriller to me is... And it's the one thing in, like, the very end where everything's, like, fully escalated. And someone's talking to the the wife about, like, so why did you go there? Mm. And the part that, like, feels like the erotic thriller to me is... In all of this, like, after having these encounters, there's a part where they go back to their hotel and they have, like, really passionate sex. And then after the sex, she's like, you know, I was thinking, like, it would be really fun to just cut off your arms and your legs and then keep you locked up in a room and then I can just use you as my sex toy whenever I want. And in this Uh way where, like, they're both kind of into it. Not as, like, a thing that she's actually going to do. I'm making so many faces not that the in listeners the way, can't see. Not in the way that she's saying this being, that, like, this is the, the British couple. Uh-huh. She's not saying this to her husband as in, like, I'm really going to do this. Uh-huh. But that they were, like, that there's, like, this sort of uh, kink thing that they're finding out that they're into. hmm And so I think that's part of the, like, weird erotic thriller of this is, like... Why do they keep going into this, like, weird, potentially dangerous situation 
it is because like that weird, potentially dangerous situation is one that like becomes more and more explicit about like that couple has like BDSM sex and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But also they are putting themselves into like a potentially far greater dangerous situation than them just like having some, some good sex and joking about like, wouldn't it be funny if I cut off your arms and legs and kept you locked up in a room to have sex with you? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. This is a lot. The movie is a lot, but I I enjoyed it, but the ending there's a part to the ending where like they want it to feel like kind of weird and poignant because you get like the start of him telling the story again. Um, oh, okay. And stuff, but it like it feels like something is missing. It like needed to go a little bit further or it needed to just like to actually delve cut into off her something arms and legs. a little bit more <laughs> or no, she's saying it to him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I I knew that and I just mixed it in my head. Yeah. Um, but I enjoyed it. I I thought it was like, I mean, it's no Snake of June, but it was a good erotic thriller for like man people putting themselves into dangerous situations because they're kind of figuring out like the thing that I like about erotic thrillers, which is the weird like uh, tension with the dangers that exist in human sexuality. Uh-huh. Um. And this is like, this is really exploring that. And I, I, it feels like it needs to like push it one step further than it does is my one complaint with it. But mm. I do think it was pretty good. Um, and I gave it an A for stairs instead of an A plus because there are a lot of really good looking stairs in Venice, including the stairs that go up to like the big fancy apartment that Christopher Walken and Helen Mirren, his wife live in. Did I mention that his wife is played by Helen Mirren? I um, think he did go up the stairs and it's a really good set of stairs but there's no there's no tension going up to the stairs in the way that you so obviously could because they're going up to this weird apartment right you know okay I, I could I, I didn't have Helen Mirren's face in my head for a minute I was like I know who this is why can I not <laughs> one of the she's been in some some good movie oh the cook the thief uh, his wife and her lover is also a good fun movie I haven't seen that to, I've yeah, heard of it I've, I've heard it. it's good um but now, I whenever I think of Helen Mirren, I do think about her role in Eye in the Sky, that movie that is just straight up propaganda. I thought you were going to say the Fast and the Furious movies. But. No, whatever. <laughs> Those movies slightly less propaganda than Eye in the Sky. <laughs> the entire movie about how much it like pains people to kill, uh, to have to wrestle with whether or not a civilian might die when they do a drone strike. And the like layers of bureaucracy that go uh-huh. on top of it that are actually hindering the ability for people to save lives by doing drone strikes. Mm-hmm. Movie's so fucking propagandist. It's one of the worst fucking movies I've ever seen. Fucking eye in the sky.
Welcome back, dear listeners. When last you heard us, oh, was it, Nia, was it uh, a couple minutes ago or a couple seconds ago? It was it was a couple minutes ago. They just listened to a track from Picnic at Hanging Rock, the movie we're about to talk about. Yeah, so we were talking about um, all the other movies we watched this week, and <clears throat> I paused the podcast when we got through that segment, and I said, hey, I'm a little tired because uh, I've been a little overworked, and also... I had to get to work pretty early today, um, and so we stopped off doing the podcast last night, and we are picking back up now to uh, the the following day to talk about Picnic at Hanging Rock. We just recorded a little little more non-homophobia zone, so you get bonus non-homophobia zone out of it. And yeah, we'll do um, we'll do Picnic at Hanging Rock. We got a couple emails. We'll do plugs, and we'll get on out of here. Yeah. Um. I will say in this in this day in between, I feel like I have lost some energy, but I f- you have more. You could not have finished it. <laughs> I have more. I would. I could. I could have closed it out. I would have been having a bad time because the other thing is I would be thinking about how I need to get to bed for work. You mm-hmm. know, so it, I I would have been. My attention would have been split a little bit. <clears throat> uh, also, if the audio sounds different. Um... We are recording remotely now, uh-huh. rather than in person. Uh, and also, you might be editing this. Yes, yes. And I don't. I think so. we have the same process, but I don't know. I don't check. So. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. Picnic, ha- Picnic at Hanging Rock uh, was released in 1975. It is an Australian film. Um it is by many considered the greatest Australian film, according to Wikipedia. Um, and it is directed by Peter Weir. Um, it is the story of... <clears throat> and produced by the McElroy brothers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is, of course, <laughs> Hal and Jim McElroy. Were you thinking yeah. of other McElroy brothers? <laughs> These are the most famous McElroy brothers. <laughs> I did click on the Wikipedia. So if you go to click on Hal and Jim, which they have as two names, but it's just one Wikipedia article because apparently they produce stuff together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then at the very top of the Wikipedia, it says in italics, not to be confused with Justin, Travis and Griffin McElroy, American podcasters, also known as the McElroy brothers. Wait, those McElroys each get their own Wikipedia page. Yeah, but Hal and Jim. Joint page. Yeah. Well, Wikipedia is just trying to get ready in case they need to jettison Travis. <laughs> <laughs> in 2021, a newly discovered species of millipede was named Nanaria Macalorium in recognition of the McElroy family's podcasts, which entertained the scientists during their fieldwork. The millipede is found <sighs> in West Virginia, as well as the wider Appalachian region. This, this millipede actually being from West Virginia makes this two percent less cringe than it all than it was it's yeah. it's still cringe <laughs> um you want you want to know another interesting uh parallel here between hal and jim mcelroy uh-huh uh and the mcelroy the other mcelroy brothers uh-huh uh in 1966 they moved to sydney <laughs> <laughs> uh they were born in melbourne which I think is how you're supposed to pronounce it. Uh-huh. Melbourne? Sure. The Anthony? Melbourne. 
the the Philadelphia 76ers uh, have a player named D'Anthony Melton. So, no, not Melton, Melbourne. Okay. Anyway, we watched Picnic and Hanging Rock. Um, there's this school in the um, Australian countryside for girls um, where they're learning to be like prim and proper young ladies. Um, <clears throat> they um, have an outing where they all, as a class, go to uh, Hanging Rock, which is this like... On Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day, they go to this weird um million year old rock formation um in the you know in the australian countryside as i said um and uh a couple of the girls um is it four girls go up um yeah um go off by themselves uh they climb the rock to like for they 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 climb the rock and they just kind of keep going and it's like kind of eerie why they just keep going up and up and up and up this rock. Um, and there's one girl who doesn't want to keep going with them, and she comes back down the mountain, and she's yelling. The other three girls um, disappear. Um, and then I assume the teacher... There's also this <clears throat> weird moment before when the four girls are all together mm. where like they take off their shoes and stockings, um, and they're all like near the summit and they just fall asleep next to this, like, you know, large rock formation. Uh-huh. Um, and then when they wake up the, the three other girls without like really looking at the, the fourth girl or responding to her when she's like, I want to go back, which she's been saying for like a while, like, I want to go back. Uh, they just keep moving forward and they just like you know, don't respond in any way to her. And then she, uh, seeing them move up into this like crevice in the rocks and sort of disappear, um, around the corner. But also this right. is when we sort of lose track of them. She like screams in terror and then runs down. And then we sort of get like a, a jump forward <laughs> to, um, the, the class returning back to the school and the, the headmaster or the headmistress of the school being like, where are the girls? Where's the teacher? And we don't even really see. I assume what happens is that the teacher hears that the girls have gone missing and goes up after them to look. And she also disappears. But there's no like we don't actually see that happen, which almost lends itself a little more to the eeriness of the whole situation of like, yeah, at what point did the teacher go missing? You know, and, and then later, I think Edith is the the girl who goes back down uh-huh. Um and she says that when she was screaming and running down, she saw that teacher running up uh, and didn't have on, uh, like, I think, like, the skirt just had the, like, uh, you know, bloomers underneath or whatever. Um, was, like, missing some articles of clothing as well and was, like, like running up. Um, and then shortly after that saw a weird red cloud. Uh, that's the other detail she gives. Okay. Okay. I missed the weird red cloud. Um yeah. And so, yeah, the rest of the film, then, is the fallout, uh, how this community, how the school, how the town around it is affected by the disappearance of these um, uh, women. Um, you know, there's a search put out. There, there are, like, <clears throat> two young men from the town that see 
uh, the girls just before they went missing. And so we spend some time with them being like, oh, we got to go looking for them. Um, they eventually find one of the girls, but not the others. Um, we see like, you know, uh, yeah, a bunch. It's a, there's like these two boys mm-hmm. who sort of saw them early on as they were going up the mountain. Um, and, you know, it, in a like boyish way, we're like interested in the girls. Oh, that one has nice legs or whatever. Um, and they become like, especially one of the boys becomes like especially obsessed with this idea of we need to go and find them. We need to search for them. Um, and wh- one of them ends up also like uh getting to like basically that crevice area uh-huh. um and like falls asleep and is like sort of beaten up somehow um and the the other boy like rescues him and brings him back down um and i think when in all of that there's a part where they find uh the the other girl who i think is, is it Irma or is it um um i believe so i believe this is irma um and and sorry if i'm going through like the plot summary a little too quickly um it's because the plot is not the thing the the plot is like important to situate it but the plot is not super what i want to talk about um it's more Mm -hmm. the tone stuff that we'll get to in a moment i feel like um but just i think the part that's like interesting to me about the plot is that like um, as it continues on, it, it just becomes like stranger and more mysterious. Yes. Uh, cause like the first, the first assumption by like police in the town is like, oh, there was somebody up there who like abducted these girls or did something to them. Um, but like they can't find them. And then eventually, uh, after I think Michael is the one who, uh, is like nearly catatonic and then Albert's the other boy. Uh, I think it's like when Albert rescues Michael, um, Michael has some lace. And then like when Albert goes back up, that's when he finds Irma. Um, we keep, mm-hmm. keep getting this like repeated, repeated thing when the doctors, uh, you know, come and look at them of being like, Oh, they're intact or whatever. Um, which obviously has, it's like the assumptions that exist there in virginity and everything. But there is oh. also this like increasing, like, well, that doesn't seem to really be the explanation of what happened here. Um, and as you, as like we see Michael becoming obsessed with the mystery and going up and all of that too, there's like this increasing, like there's some sort of pull just that Hanging Rock itself has that a lot of the, the, um, from the very beginning, the way stuff is shot suggests this, but like the, as the plot continues, it also continues to like steer you less away from logical explanations for what happened and more towards like, there is just uh, like almost the to do the like very um you know slightly rolling my eyes at myself here but like to sort of explain it in a way that i think a lot of people understand that like junji ito like why are people obsessed with this oh, thing yeah like yeah, it yeah. has a pole that is like t- bringing these people here in and of itself and what's like the the horror is coming from the the individuals themselves wanting to be lost um or like wanting to like go up there uh, into this situation and like somehow lose themselves up there. I would. Um, I I don't think you need to um, roll your eyes at yourself for that comparison because I would I would not be shocked if you brought this up to Junji Ito. I'm sure he'd be like, oh yeah, Picton Hanging Rock. I got like half my shit from yeah. there. Like I I would not be shocked if that seems yeah. like an influence he would just probably own up to. You know. <laughs> yeah. 
I just was slightly rolling my eyes at myself because I feel like there's so much where people will be like, uh, you know, horror, uh, the horror of the unknown, Junji Ito. Yeah. Ju- <laughs> they're, 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 for, for a certain type of person that isn't going to pull on Lovecraft, they're, they're only going to pull on Junji Ito as like the one good horror writer that they're <laughs> even aware of. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think there's like a very, there, there is a particular way that both of these are handling like, uh, the unknown as being specifically about like human obsession with a thing uh-huh. more so than like, um, the thing itself. Um, cause I feel like that's a thing in a lot of Junji Ito that I, I've read as well is that like some of the horror is like the human obsession with the horror. Yes. Um, yeah. This, the, 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 the beauty of Tomie is that, um, like, the reason people keep getting uh, into trouble with Tomie is that people cannot help themselves but get into trouble with Tomie, you know? Um, yeah. But we don't need to talk about that too much more. Um, just to tie off the plot summary, um, Sarah and um, Mrs. Appleyard are the other two characters that we spend um, a good amount of time with in the, like, as we're sort of doing like how the community is affected by this sarah is an orphan girl um whose uh guardian is not paying for sarah to be there right now um it has been late with various bills for whatever reason um and sarah uh sarah is very gay for miranda i don't know how else to say that (laughs) <laughs> yeah it if if people say that it is subtext i'm like mm, i just feel like it's text she's writing love poetry miranda yeah. is like sarah you'll have to learn someone other than me i'm you know i'll be graduating soon or whatever like yeah not even i'll be graduating soon but like i won't be around anymore yes uh as yeah. she's about to go get lost in in the hanging rock yeah and i want to i maybe want to talk more about that conversation between miranda and sarah in just a moment so we sort of see uh like Appleyard and sarah even before the disappearance had like this tension coming between them and now the um the disappearance of um these girls uh, has driven a wedge even further between them as uh, Appleyard becomes... Well, so Appleyard is like, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, pay for the school. Like, we're already struggling with our bills. We've got this one girl who's not paying. We've got one or two other girls. Uh, we've got some girls who are going to get pulled out of the school because of this disappearance. You know, obviously the girls who disappeared, uh, they're not going to be paying us. So, and... Um, that sort of fear uh, and anxiety get she sort of like takes out on Sarah in a big way as this sort of like representation of all of the school's woes in the wake of this. Meanwhile, Sarah uh, is working through a lot of repressed sexuality about Sarah, uh, Miranda uh, that she cannot speak to anybody about, and so is um, yeah taking this uh, retaliation from Appleyard uh, and just sort of like being catatonic and waifish in the way that like uh <laughs> victorian women in novels can be you know yeah there's also this like uh subplot that doesn't really go anywhere other than it just being kind of a reveal that i feel like other movies would try to treat with weight in the way that this just like has as a an element of it mm-hmm. um 
But that so Sarah was at an orphanage with her brother before she came to this school. Um, and we learned that like the the matron or something of the orphanage was somehow abusive. Um, I don't think there's like clear details on that. Uh, but also like she was separated from her brother. Uh, but then her brother is Albert. We right. Learned. Um, and so they're, they're like separated brother and sister. Yeah. Um, and it's not like a, the, the movie is not like, oh, this misconnection of their, you know, these two characters just like, don't come into contact in any way, you know, like they're so close and yet so far, but it's not like about that in any way. It is just a sort of element of what's going on. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, and so then there's a part where uh, Mrs. Appleyard goes up to Sarah's room um, and is basically saying, like, since your guardian has still hasn't paid tuition, it's been six months, you're going to return to the orphanage. Um, and then what exactly happens here is unclear, but what I, th- what I think is implied is that Sarah leaves her bed and jumps out the window, but it, it I, somehow Appleyard is aware of this. Um, and maybe implied to have done it, but also there's a suggestion of like by saying that she's going to return her to the orphanage. There's a certain amount of like um, putting her into this very difficult situation anyway. Yeah. Um, where there's like a certain amount of blame on her as this person who is supposed to be taking care of this young woman and is like uh, instead concerned about like money and things like that instead of like caring for for her. Um, Especially as, like, basically everything that she cares about, most notably Miranda, is, like, she's losing all of that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there's the eventual reveal of, of Sarah, like, dead in the garden. Um, but, uh, you know, and then when it, like, the the guy who discovers her goes to inform uh, Mrs. Appleyard, she's already, like, in full, like, black morning dress. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of, like... As the movie dissolves in this sort of dreamy way, we get that, um, you know, a short time later, uh, Mrs. Appleyard's body is found um, near Hanging Rock, uh, and they think that she was, like, climbing the rock uh, and fell down, um, and that, um, so this is all, this is all based on a true story of some girls who went missing, um, so I was trying to look into this because yeah. I was like trying to look into the actual true story. And so it's based on a book called Picnic at Hanging Rock. And from what I can tell, and I I didn't dive deeper after I saw this picnic. The original book Picnic at Hanging Rock is not really based on like a true event other than like sort of vaguely like missing persons and, and things like that. Um, but that had such an aura around it that uh, at the time it was published and also like the the way it was written was in this very like this is a factual report about the things that happened. Uh, and so like people believed, especially because the book was published in like 65, 60s. It was like, 67. you know, about a decade, 67. Um and it's about an event that's supposed to have happened in like 1900 or something. A lot of people thought that this was an actual documented thing that was being put into the book. Uh-huh. Um, but there's no like specific disappearance at Hanging Rock that happened. Um, it's interesting because the, the movie very much plays it as based on true events, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think in the same way that the book does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, while we were watching this movie, also had this belief, which I think is a common belief, that this is based on like an actual disappearance that happened around St. Valentine's Day in 1900. Um, and so I was looking into it because I sometimes like just looking into these like weird events, you know, mm-hmm. um, and found out that there's no like specific thing that happened here uh it you know it's framed as if it was a true story but it's entirely fictional um and it's it's pulling from like pseudo historical references uh a little bit from like national folklore uh but it has also become part of like australian national folklore at this point where like people believe the the myth of you know the girls disappearing so uh um but yeah like i guess the novel like the foreword says uh you know is this book fact or fiction my readers must decide for themselves which is just big like i'm writing a 1967 version (laughs) of uh Riker being like uh was this true (laughs) uh is that true do you believe what i just said (laughs) um yeah apparently no actual disappearance but like there's That's like a statue of of the the disappeared Miranda um at the Hanging Rock Visiting Center Visitor Center. That's crazy. <laughs> uh there's like a way that this has like become canonized as a, a historical event in a weird way. Um so um but so we so, want it to be true. It's part of the horror of the novel. We want it to be true that these girls got lost. <laughs> it's so true. Um so yeah, like <clears throat> okay. Can I, I, I want to actually, so I want to talk about like my reaction to this movie on this watch. And I think actually M sent an email, um, or, or a message online, <laughs> um, yeah. that I think M, M sent th- this and I'm going to read, they have a question and we can answer the question later, but I'm going to read what they said. Um, just start the email. Hey squad, uh, I remember this movie being one of those where I was like half bored by it while watching it, but then it was instantly a five-star movie for me. Do you ever have this with movies? Sometimes you just can't help but be a little restless, and sometimes the movie is just great despite your own lack of patience. Um, and that was, that was absolutely, uh, I'd seen this movie a long time ago. That was absolutely where I was at with the movie this time, where I was really struggling to stay awake. This movie uh, is fucking slow and boring um, and, <laughs> and um, is an hour 45 that feels like six hours um, and it's excruciating. And it is also like, it is so fucking perfect. This movie is fucking yeah. amazing. <laughs> and like, I mean, yeah, when we were going to watch it because, uh, you know, Emily will ask every time that it's like movie time for stairwells being like, what are we watching tonight? Always with like a slightly exasperated air about her. Uh-huh. Uh, Cause we're, we're hardly ever watching a movie that she's going to enjoy. At yeah. some point we should like put in a Jackie Chan movie. She'll have fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and I responded uh, a long, slow, boring horror movie where nothing ever happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what the movie is, but it's fucking great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. It, the 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 this movie is willing to sit in an uncomfortable moment um in a certain way that is just uh there's nothing else like it in a lot of ways it's it's really just like 
you know, here are here is a person that is feeling a million things, and we're not going to give you access to what those feelings are, and we're just going to, like, put the camera in the room with them for, like, an extended period of time of just silence, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, and that's just, like, the engine of this movie, um, and it's so fucking good. <laughs> and yeah. it's also, I wanted to fall asleep during it. <laughs> yeah, there was a part where you, like, had to stand up so you would not fall asleep. There was a part, I, I was just, I was, in a, I was in a bad state last week, and there was a part where I was standing up so I wouldn't fall asleep, and I was falling asleep anyway, because uh, I was just in a bad fucking state last week. Yeah. <laughs> I say as if this wasn't four days ago or something, and I'm totally yeah. fine now. I, you know, everything's gotten a lot better for me since then. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, work uh, didn't just uh, let me know that uh, they're going to need me to work more hours all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah also this is one of those movies where um in a very different way than like tokyo drifter or something but like w there are some movies where i still believe like our core argument of listening to someone talk about a movie on a podcast getting a plot synopsis, um, all these kinds of things is like not going to give you the actual experience of watching the movie. You are not really going to know what that movie is like. So much of the experience of a movie is like the, the images and the sounds happening and you are there experiencing them in real time. Um, and that is like part of what is cinema to me is like the actual experiential thing of being there and it's running. Um, and there's lots of ways that like formalism can try to break down those things and talk about what they are doing. Uh, but to some degree, it's always going to be like breaking down a song into these are the different, like, uh, patterns of the melody, or these are the chords or whatever. Uh, this is like the song structure and none of that is going to like give you the same, uh, emotional response or the same like effect that just mm -hmm. listening to the song is going to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's also like, uh, infinitesimally more work than just like experiencing it. Um, and I think this is true for all movies, but there are some movies where we can like talk through the characters and the plot and stuff. And I, you know, come away feeling like, someone still probably has a good idea of this movie. We've really like explored the themes of the movie. Um, we've explored what was happening with the plot and stuff. Yeah. Uh, this is one where it's like, I can't tell you the effect of just like hearing that flute music. Right. And <laughs> you just get like the, the, uh, weirdly static shots of the rocks. Um, and you'll see like the girls pass between like a crack in the distance or something. And just like all of that has this like, uh, very immediate, like emotional and, right. um, you know, like just experiential thing that's like happening to you. Um, that it is sort of impossible to like recreate or fully explain. Like, and that's like the magic of this movie is all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, we talked about all of this plot and like none of, as you said, like none of that plot really, it, it kind of ties in and is like reinforcing some of it, but it's not like what makes this movie good. It's not what you really care about with this movie. Um, uh -huh. even saying that like, Sarah kind of has this, uh, you know, crush or love for Miranda and the like tragedy that she's going through. 
does not capture like just how fucking gay the two girls on screen and like the way that Sarah looks at her, like all of that stuff, just the way that it's framed. Um, right. The like breathy way that she's reciting the love poetry, um, her desire when she doesn't, everybody else gets to go on the picnic and she has to stay behind because she's not like doing well in classes or whatever. Um, and has to like recite whatever poem was, was picked out by the teacher. And she wants to, read the poem that she wrote that's this love poem about Miranda and is like not being allowed to. Um and all of that stuff is like you know, I can talk about the the immediate like, oh, you can see how that's a moment of repression. But also like sitting in the space um is, is so much of what the movie is doing. Right. Uh in a way that's like it almost feels trite to like talk about what this movie is yeah. in a way that watching <laughs> it is not. <laughs> no, you literally like you you stole the point I was about to make because uh, <laughs> I was like, hey, though, um, <clears throat> the thing I was going to say is that, like, you know, to to like there there are themes here that um, we can talk about um, like this much like the last movie we covered, The Devils. Um, this movie is just like swimming in repressed sexuality and how um, specifically like how repressing things um like affects a person how um this movie is very much about like feelings that one cannot say out loud but like in some ways are like crystal clear in one's own heart but because you can't say it out loud um you repress it and um it becomes this other thing and how how those feelings consume you um and it's amazing because, like, I think that's really cool and interesting and good and worth digging into. And also, like, the movie is so good at bringing all of that across that in some way it almost feels, like, pointless to talk about. Because, like, in, in some ways no discussion of it can really get into, can, can for me fully bring across that, like, it's the 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 aesthetic experience of watching the movie brings all of that to you um in a way that like um i can't fully express in words you know it it is like the the movie is expressing like thoughts and feelings and ideas solely through like images and like like sounds and things that um uh are outside the realm of words that it's just like holy shit (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know yeah. um, um and it feels well, just so um it feels at once so subtextual and so at the surface it like perfectly blends those two things in, in, yeah, in it, such a great way it does a really good job of like um making like when something is so deeply repressed that it's like a a thing that is like um you know, giving you like constant, uh, you know, trauma or like just something that you were struggling with or whatever. There is like a way that it like, uh, seeps into and permeates like, uh, every interaction you have, like the, the, everything that you are doing. Um, and in a way that like, as long as you are like just enough dialed into how someone is like, uh, going through that, it becomes so obvious, even though it is repressed. Um, and this movie is like specifically about 
having it where it is dialed in, where you are like um, in that moment where you are seeing how that repressed energy is like uh, still coming out in this other way and is still like reverberating through all the interactions that like Sarah's having and, uh, you know, a, a lot of the girls are having in the school. Um, like, I think the the overarching feeling I have with this movie, and I think also one of the things that I find so fascinating whenever I watch it um, is that there is a certain like uh, horror and terror to Hanging Rock of it, like, you know, seeming to like swallow up these girls. Uh, but there's also this like this sense of freedom, mm-hmm. uh, this sense of like release that exists in that where uh, in many ways it like part of this movie is also existing in, in such a repressed state that like becoming lost is desirable over like going back to that school. Um, and you get the like far more immediately tragic uh, like explain thing that happens with Sarah. And maybe that same sort of thing is happening with these other girls, but like, in them just disappearing, there's like some space there for uh, a hope beyond like the tragedy that Sarah has that like, there's some sort of getting lost there. That is like a good thing rather than um, this like sort of deep moment of desperation and, and just like, uh, you know, right. desire to escape this situation, even if it's in the most, you know, tragic and like, uh, you know, permanent solution that exists. So well, and then oh. the the way that the way that this gets reflected across generations, um, and like the way that the the, the brief glimpse glimpse into Appleyard that we get at the end, um, because because Appleyard has been a, a character who's very closed off to us, like we do not yeah. get any access to her and then in the final moments there's a scene of her and the other teacher at the school um and she's had some uh, she's had some wine and she's opening up about how much she uh she's not opening up she's she's not opening up because that's not like a thing that is in the vocabulary of this movie you know yeah um and definitely not a thing in the vocabulary of appleyard no (laughs) But the thing that she says is, um, she's like, I had I had grown to depend so much on um, uh, McCraw, the girl, the 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 teacher who went missing. It, I had grown so much to depend on her and her strength. Um, and then you know, um, she sort of like stares off into the middle distance for a moment, and then sort of recomposes herself, and is like, you know, oh, let me tell you a story about Miss McCraw. And this story is like we're not going to be talking about my feelings about this anymore. We're just going to be remembering yeah. her, you know? Well, and also says, uh, her masculine strength, I think her masculine um, strength, which does give it this like extra tinge of like, uh, more deeply, uh, you know, repressed than we've yes. seen with some of the other girls, but this like, uh, quick little tip into maybe her homoeroticism. Yes. You know? Yes. And so yeah, there's the there's this brief moment where we see that like oh the things that Sarah is going through the like rep- the the feelings that Sarah can't say um, that she wants to say and doesn't know how to say um, Appleyard is feeling those same things and there's just like this brief there's this brief moment where we the viewer not Sarah 
definitely not Sarah, but we get to see into like, uh, oh, these two characters are like one and the same, you know, like Sarah and Appleyard um, are experiencing the same woe. And, uh, you know, Appleyard is sort of like taking that woe out on Sarah because uh, she doesn't know what else to do. Uh, yeah. And all of this comes across and I mean, in it, like, it's also going to end with Appleyard. Um, like when Sarah is dead, there's a part where she's like, Oh, like her guardian and came and picked her up in a way that feels like could feel like a cover, but also the way that the actress is delivering the line has almost this air of like, uh, she's gone into this like deep state of denial about mm-hmm. what has happened for a moment. Um, where you then get her in the like full grieving, like she's packed all of her bags because she's like not going to be in this position anymore. Um, you know, she hasn't been fired. She might be fired for this, but she hasn't been fired, but she's already being like, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, and you know, it carries that double. And I, I think it is like meant to be her having both. There's like that implication of guilt in that, but also that like actual genuine mourning, um, over what happened. So, uh-huh. and like, yeah. And like the way that this movie, um, accomplishes so much by like in, in in the thing I was talking about like we have this like four minute scene of dinner um where nothing that is actually like important gets talked about and then you know in three lines we get the actual like thing that matters the 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 uh um the the truth underneath it um and then we go back to boring small talk conversation we're not we're talking around the thing we're not talking about the thing um yeah and and then like the way like the the stuff that you're talking about gets done in like shots of like you know empty rooms around the school and um you know we see you know this shot of um apple yard in morning dress but we don't actually get like why is she in morning dress? Like what, like, you know, how did she know to be in it? This sort of like ambiguity. Um, and then just, you know, letting the close up just like rest on her in morning dress for a moment, you know, not like, Oh, you just see it and we move on. It's like, we're just going to like rest here and linger here. Um, it's so good, dude. It's so fucking good. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Um, I don't know how much more I have to say about this this movie. Uh, people should go watch it. Yes. Um, I don't know if KB is listening to this, but uh, KB, if you have not seen this movie, you should go watch it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll specifically recommend that one uh, to you. Um, do we want to rate the stairs? Um, yeah. So I forget what we said when we were watching it. We were talking about it a little bit. I feel like it's in the A range, but I think so um, too. I think I was at A minus and you were A plus. I think. I know. I feel like A is probably good. Just I, like I'm, a five. I'm happy with an A. Um. Yeah. Oh, I hit Control A. I'm glad you actually typed it. Uh. So, just for for listeners, um, the big. So there's there's two stairs, uh, that we see. There's one sort of interior to the school building, and there's one exterior to it. And um, 
I think we're both at an A because there's not the the most this is the stairs scene is like um the 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 class that went on the trip is like rolls up outside it's nighttime we see Appleyard like coming down the stairs to be like what happened why are you hours and hours late um uh that is like the stairs scene to me but for the most part we see these stairs a handful of times through the movie and it doesn't feel like the scene is centered around the stairs it feels like oh here are some really nice ornate stairs but there wasn't like the jump out iconic moment to me yeah there is like the part where they all go down the stairs to go on the trip uh but it doesn't fully carry the weight that like it is doing the thing of like these are people going on the stairs to like uh you know face their their fate um but it's not like doing it with the same weight that other stuff might um and so yeah i think the main like actual sterile scene is when apple yard comes down the girls come back they are you know crying and uh upset and shaken by you know the the girls going missing um and uh they all sort of like you know go up the stairs uh in you know this upset state uh and sarah who has also come down is like looking for miranda and can't find her and is just like stuck at the bottom of the stairs i think mm. when the scene ends so yeah yeah that's um, the other that's a good point i forgot about yeah miranda coming down or sarah coming or sarah down. yeah um there's also, also is is climbing a mountain going upstairs. <laughs> no, it was in Black God, White Devil. It's not in this movie. We didn't talk yeah. at all about, um, and maybe because it doesn't feel. I don't. I don't have fully coherent thoughts on this. Um, there are a lot of like. There are a lot of like slow shots of like. Here's just a spider weaving its web. Here are some ants going about their ant business. Here's, like, the clouds moving over Hanging Rock. There's very much... There's a conversation in this movie between, like, these girls going to the school to become, like, prim and proper, uh, like, gentlewomen of... Ladies of English society. You know? Like, capital E, English society. <clears throat> um... There's that juxtaposed against the, like, harshness of, um, you know, Australian wildlife and Australian, um, you know, uh, uh, nature, you know? I don't yeah. feel, I, f I feel like, I feel like volumes is being spoken about, like, you know, what the colonial project uh, of, uh, bringing these people to Australia is I don't maybe feel like, Oh, I have enough cultural backing to like fully 100% unpack that, you know, like, or, or yeah. like, like I, I can see that it's there in the movie, but I don't have the vocabulary is maybe the word I was looking for, you know? Yeah. There's this certain thing happening as well of like, they're going on this picnic and I, I think it's, um, Miss McCraw who's talking about like, you know, basically going out like where all the spiders and scorpions and you know 
poisonous snakes and stuff are to like have a picnic. And, you know, there's all this talk about like, be careful where you're going because like there are dangerous things. Um, but also they're like then going there to just like have a picnic and like, you know, eat some food and, and enjoy like sitting there in the like pretty landscape. Um, and so, yeah, I think there is a certain amount of like, uh, it's definitely like engaging with that colonial aspect. I think part of like doing a deeper read of it is also hindered by the fact that like, um, there are no like Aboriginal people in this film. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh-huh. there's no like actual stuff around like, uh, you know, the, the people who live in the bush and like, uh, who lived here before all these settlers came and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so all of like, it, it makes it into like the, the landscape versus the like, uh, colonial, you know, white characters in a way that there's still some like, but it's not like going to get into the real heart of that stuff because it is specifically just making it about it. Like people taming the land, but the land is like, uh, devoid of like other people mm. and there's a way on the on the way to hanging rock um the teacher is talking about hanging rock itself is a million years old um which may to us humans seem like a very long time might seem like forever but to rocks a million years is not very much all the other you know like the rest of you know the rocks, the mountains, the the plateaus around this part of the country are 27 million years old, you know. So Hanging yeah. Rock at a million is this sort of, like, aberrant intrusion, even if it feels, um, you know, natural. It, it, it is natural, but it may, it may feel like it's been there forever, but it is new in some way. Um, and yeah. so I feel like that is, like, the movie sort of, like, as directly as it can addressing um saying as directly as it can doesn't feel quite right in some ways i want to say that that is like the movie addressing the the um colonial thing head on uh but there is still like we still do not see the people who were displaced by english you know colonization you know, like that is not a thing that enters into the movie yeah. in any way. And so there's like, I don't want to like give the movie too much credit. I also don't want to give the movie too little credit because yeah, I just feel like I don't know enough about Australian history to sort of like come in here and say, this means this, this means that, uh, this is good or bad representation or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, Um, um it's definitely it's definitely an element in there um so uh i yeah oh oh the other thing i just wanted to quickly note about this was i thought it was so funny i was like i think this is the thing that's happening in the movie i couldn't quite like put it into words and then the movie very helpfully put it into words for me where the edith character is say says you know, if it weren't for those boys over there, we'd be the only living things for miles and miles around. And then the next shot, and then it cuts to, like, 
a shot of ants and a shot of like a caterpillar like going into its cocoon or something you know it's like yeah. um and like a shot of just like there are trees dude the trees are alive <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so it felt it felt very uh like i think this is a thing that's happening in the movie and then the movie like hitting me over the head with this is what's happening <laughs> yeah yeah there is also a certain amount of like um and I think this is one of the things that makes it even harder to do like a full read of what's happening in terms of like the colonial effort stuff happening in here. Cause I think there's also this undercurrent of like, um, part of the, what's, there's like this very anthropocentric perspective of a lot of the characters that gets called out in terms of like, from the human perspective, these rocks seem very old from the perspective of the earth. These are very new. Um, all those sorts of things. Like we have like this limited perspective of what's happening. Um, or of like the world around us, that comment is also going into it. Uh, and so I think also some of the, the like colonial stuff is butting up against like this anthropocentric, part of the like uh you know mystery and the the stuff around that is like this thing that is perhaps beyond like human understanding but that could be within like a different form of understanding um i think is also like lending into all of it and so that that's one of the things that like muddles all of this in a way that um is and i i am by no means like a an expert on australian aboriginal uh cultures and struggles and things um i feel like compared to you have probably done more australian uh uh-huh. like media and stuff yeah uh, even beyond emily and i watching australian reality tv shows <laughs> um which is not largely getting into aboriginal stuff but um you know uh i let me pull up the um name of that i just want to do like a shout out to the i watched it um i think last year um uh, that is like specifically made by a an Aboriginal woman um, in Australia about like you know her life. Um, well, oh my survival as an Aboriginal, um, and then within the movie it's sort of taking the stool meaning of like some of it is like the lessons of how to survive in the outback. Um, you know, this is like the the animals that you can eat and here's like how to cook a porcupine or whatever but also like very textually the movie is about like um surviving as like her own distinct culture and not wanting to give way to the like colonial culture um so i want to call that out as like a, a f- another film and th- in that episode i talked about also the weirdness that still exists around like this movie exists because of funding from like australian government arts funds you know um all of that like that kind of art being preserved still involves like a certain colonial project which is um right you know one of the things that always exists here but um but yeah i think also what's happening in this movie is a little bit muddied um in a way that again makes it harder for me to like fully do a read on it mm-hmm, um uh-huh, so uh-huh. um well should we briefly talk about what we're doing next time? And then should we do the two emails we got? Yeah. Um, so you, in part because of the the way that your schedule has been shaking out, you I feel like usually Monday nights are a little bit better for you, right? Yes, yes. Um, We've been listeners 
watching things on Friday and recording on Sundays. And Sundays are just dreadful for me. I Sundays are really bad for me at work. And so I've been wanting us to be able to switch up the schedule. And it's been sort of like, it's hard to do and keep the train rolling at the same time. And so... Uh, it's also been hard to do because so I record Bhutan Tuesday nights. Uh-huh. Um, I record uh, Longfire Wednesday nights. Um, Thursday night is like both you and Nora have Thursdays off, so you and Nora are doing stuff. Mm. Um, and then you know Friday, obviously we're watching it, and then Saturday I often have uh, Ghost Divers like every other week. Um, sometimes we can record that night. If your, you know, your schedule allows it and my uh, recording schedule allows it. But like for a really long time, because I had to drive in to work uh, Tuesday, early Tuesday morning, I could not be up late recording um, a podcast Monday nights. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that has changed is my work is moving when I have to go into the office from Tuesday to Thursday, um, which I think will be OK for around the long fire. But um, we'll see. I, I might have to mix things up a little bit um but that now means that that monday is far more doable for me because i just have my normal you know i don't have to wake up at uh what 5 a.m dawn yeah um so uh what we're gonna move to is watch the movie monday uh and then record on friday yeah um, Which will be very nice for me. And I appreciate yeah. you accommodating that. Um, um, which but, I also prefer to recording Mondays generally just yeah, because same. recording recording can go long. Um, and it also makes editing it for Tuesday or at least really annoying. So. Yeah. Uh, all this to say that to to make that happen, we're like, we're just going to have to like miss a week sort of we're gonna um probably do another puton style like 30 minutes on the clock episode for next week um but like yeah we're just we're gonna like we're just gonna like sort of miss a week here you know yeah um and then we'll start up that new schedule um and so in in terms of releases the release schedule is not changing. It's just that that one sort of in between yeah. hiccup day. But yeah, so like episode, um, this is episode eighty six. Like episode eighty seven, um, w- might just be a different thing than what uh, you know stairwells usually is. Um, and then yeah, episode eighty eight will get back to normal. And for episode eighty eight, we're gonna be. Um, Doing the thing we've been talking about for, you know, a long little while here of talking about um, documentaries. And so um, we're going to be watching Land Without Bread, uh, directed by Lisa Buñuel and dire- released in 1933. And we'll also be talking about Calling Mr. Smith, um, di- directed by the Temerson brothers, whose names I'm not going to make a better effort at pronouncing or at this moment. This is, it's Franziska? I think. Okay. So I think it might be, I, I don't know if it's a brother or a sister or if it's a husband wife duo. Oh, um, yes, 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 yes. It's been a really long time since I have uh, um, seen this movie, but. Calling Mr. Smith. I'm pulling this up. This is released in 1943. This is like a short documentary. Yeah, uh, both of these are fairly short, which is why I decided to group them together. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, I do not have a great deal of information, but I, I, I would imagine that these are like, yeah, husband and wife. I'm not finding much information about these two people at all, though, which is disappointing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think that these these two people did a lot. Uh, notably, this is uh like a a controversial, uh, politically con- controversial film. Um, so, um. I think that's like this maybe they'll I could be wrong but I have not heard of anything else that they've done myself so um anyway um so that's that and emails um so I'll I'll start with the rest of M's email um oh to to answer the one that was in the part that you read uh any other movies that ha- give you that feeling uh one is people know how much we love Simon Long on this podcast. Uh um every Simon Long film is a little bit this. Oh for me I I find myself like weirdly enraptured in Simon Long. Like like uh mm, the whole sort of tested my limits of this in some way, but like Goodbye Dragon Inn, um despite being the way that it is, um absolutely like got me uh i feel like with goodbye dragon Inn, there were still moments where i was like i could just fall asleep right now like i i, I was enjoying it I, I think i think i agree with you a little bit more like but i feel like i'm also sometimes enraptured with picnic at hanging rock uh-huh um but i do feel like there are moments in picnic at hanging rock where it's especially like the shots around hanging rock and like them getting lost and stuff. That's where I'm like really enraptured. And then there's some of this stuff that's like more slow and boring. That's like back at the school where I don't feel it quite as much. Um, where it's Simon long kind of maintains that feeling in a different way, but that I have when they're like getting lost into the rocks, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, where you're kind of just like watching people silently move around a space. Um, and everything is just like palpable with this like repressed feeling. Um, also notably, I, I want to like signal, uh, signal single out, um, uh, the rebels of a neon God. Um, that film in particular is like, I think a lot less slow, in terms yeah. of like cinematic yeah. style. But I'm also thinking of I'm trying to remember the the short film, the like Madame Butterfly or whatever. I don't um, think I caught that one. I think you watched that one without Yeah, me. I watched that one on my own. That one was big, like, um this movie's boring, but also I got to the end of it and I still enjoyed it a lot. You know? Mm-hmm. Um but Um Yeah, I I for me like I I I feel that I feel this way. I definitely had this feeling about movies, um, because it literally just happened this week with Picnic and Hanging Rock. It's sort of hard for me to think of other examples, but I def I know what Em's talking about for sure. You know, yeah. Um. <clears throat> so Em's uh the rest of Em's email. Anyway, I'm kind of movie mode right now. What's the one movie you think I should watch right away? I'll do it, but only for you. Is this... I I had interpreted this as I get one, you get one. But we might we might collectively get one movie. Um... I think that we should, we should both get one. Okay. Well, you... 
listeners, listeners, uh, Nia, Nia, uh, I, I stole Nia's first answer. I'm going to be stealing Nia's first answer, and then she yeah. had to get a different so, answer. So really, and, Nia's picking twice. You, and if you insist on only having one, it's this one that Autumn's going to say because I picked it initially. Snake in June. Uh, yeah. The the um, Sukamoto film we just recently watched. Uh, M, you'd really enjoy that. You just you would just enjoy that. Yeah. Um, the one that I then picked when you stole that one from me. Um, so I, I had the moment where I briefly, uh, flirted with the idea of saying Hibari no Mori no Ishimatsu, because I think if any Yakuza film is going to get M, it is going to be the drag musical one. Um, I just think that's true. Um, but the, the, the one that I, I don't think M has seen that is my actual, you know, second recommendation here is In a Lonely Place. Yeah, I, I... I would really, really, really highly recommend M watch uh, In a Lonely Place. I think that's I think that's your shit. Uh, and if you're listening to this podcast at all, you should watch In a Lonely Place. Uh, that movie's fucking good. Um, if yeah. you like the movies we talk about for this podcast, you're gonna like In a Lonely Place. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that movie got the Santo seal of appro- seal of approval. Yeah. Yeah, I think it did. Um, um, and if I'm going to slide in a third one under, under the, the, you know, door as it closes here, <laughs> uh, the hole just as another like musical. Oh, I was going to, I was going to say goodbye dragon in. I thought M watched the hole. Maybe, maybe I don't remember. Um, goodbye dragon in would also be, you know, I think those are the two Simon long that would most likely grab M. Um, our other question from Ina, um, Hey there, Stair Steppers. How would each of the Hanging Rock Girls dress if they existed today? This reminded me that I wanted to, every now and then, not often, but every now and then, it's worth reading Letterboxd reviews. I'm just going to read this Letterboxd review that I saw on Friday. Uh, This is from V, four stars, all caps. These three ladies straight up died for the aesthetic. (laughs) (laughs) One of the greatest reviews on Letterboxd. These three ladies did straight up die for the aesthetic. <laughs> um, I'm trying to like the thing about if this movie, if this movie is contemporary to 1975, if this movie is contemporary to right now, 2023, the thing that would become true about this is that each of these girls would have their own like. There's prep girl, mall goth girl, um, jock girl, you know, on down the line. Like, they would all have their own individual vibes. Um, it is, like, because of the, because this is set at the turn of the 20th century that you get the, they all have one unified vibe, um, sort of thing going on. Yeah, with, like, the slight variations. Like, one girl has, like, the glasses and, like, a little bit more of that, like, uh, the nerd of the group vibe going yeah. on but like and and you can still kind of get that like Miranda's like the the popular prep girl mm-hmm. you know but so much of like the aesthetic of like if this was set today and they had all of their own outfits I feel like I would not like the movie quite as much as like there's something about like all of them just having this like white lace uh that adds to like the the 
whole vibe of this film. Like they are dying for the aesthetic and the aesthetic is like this specific, like slightly wayfish, you know, white lace aesthetic. The the other thing um, happening here is that like, there is a, there is such a movie that exists uh, that is this set in like the modern day. Um, and it's the Virgin suicides, you know? Um, yeah. Which I, I have not seen the Virgin suicides, but I, I fully understand that the, the Virgin suicides is just lifting from this movie very heavily. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what is the vibe of the girls? Like, what is Kirsten Dunst up to in the Virgin Suicides? I know you just watched that recently. Yeah. Um. I mean, I feel like the Virgin Suicides also have a like. It is the modern version of it, which is that they all kind of have the like, uh, white polo, like, mm. like you're like go like you're going to Catholic school kind of vibe, like the white polo, the these like, bitches uh, play tennis. Skirt, um. You know, maybe you have like a, I think like Kirsten Dunst has a, a vest, like a sweater vest over the white polo. Um, but it, and it specifically is like that kind of, um, not even necessarily polo, like it might be a full button up, but like it, it, it does have that, um, at least private school vibe with like a little bit of a Catholic hinge, but not like to the full like plaid, you know, uh, right. The full like porno stereotype of the Catholic schoolgirl, but it's like got a little bit of that energy. Um, is, and they all there's... kind of have like blonde hair. Um, so there's definitely, um, a slightly different version of this movie where they're all like extremely buttoned up Catholic schoolgirls, you know, Um, it sounds like Virgin Suicides, I think, is like a movie that's sort of like poking at like, are these actually buttoned up like Catholic school girls? But there's a version of it that's like, no, these girls are actually like buttoned up for real. (laughs) Um, let me let me like send this. I'll see if I can find some other photos. But this is like the first one that I feel like um, is giving the, the vibe. Um, I hate when it like doesn't want to post the actual photo. Well, there, yeah, there you now go. It's showing it, there you go. Um, but oh, here's another. Um, I mean, in this one, they're like all sisters. But um. the other thing, these could be four TikTok girls. I could believe that these are four girls who all like make videos on TikTok or something. Yeah. You just go in a completely different direction. <laughs> so here you get like that blue green skirt. Oh yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it does have that certain, like, uh, our parents are very Christian vibe. Yes. So, um, I do feel like that would be the, oh, I mean here, this is from when they, they tie themselves to the tree in the movie. Uh, this one, they're just like full picnic at hanging rock. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that is um, just that is just picnic and hanging rock. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, I do still feel like if this was made today, there would still be a certain amount of like, even if there you get the slight differences of personality, I feel like it would be more in this vibe, mm-hmm. personally. Uh, or you go the other level, but I I don't think it has the same aesthetic impact that you're talking about, where it's like, yeah, the Miranda is the prep girl. Um, you know. Uh, Irma or whatever is like goth, you know, that kind of like mall goth, that kind of vibe. Um, but I just feel like the aesthetic would not like, uh, hit the same way that way. Um, well, 
let's get on out of here so that um, we can get this edited and uploaded. Uh, I don't got nothing else. Yeah. Nanahachi is uh, real. I'm, we have to do oh. plugs. Oh, yeah, we got to do plugs. We got to do plugs. Um, Where can we go find you? You can find me on Twitter at Autumnal underscore coffee. You can find me on co-host at Autumnal. You can go to exportodd.io. That'll take you to the Patreon page. Um, and we have... What do we have? For a dollar a month... Sorry, I just blanked out for a minute. For a dollar a month, you can get this this podcast and a bunch of others early, like Gotham City Limits or Mordor Movie Night. Um, and for $5 a month, you can get... Um, <clears throat> you can get... you. For $1 a month, you can get a couple episodes of Arcanum, Ars Arcanum early. For $5 a month, you get bonus episodes of Ars Arcanum uh, that'll be coming soon, as well as already existing bonus episodes of this podcast, bo- bonus episode, um, and bonus episodes of um, Coffee and Comic Books, some other stuff at that $5 tier that's exclusive for those patrons, like Pop Town Funk, which... Maybe someday I'll come back. Maybe it's just fully subsumed in franchise land. Maybe we bounce back and forth between the two. I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Fox Omnia on Twitter or, you know, other websites, Letterboxd, uh, co-host. I don't really use that much anymore, but co-host. Um, Annie List, if you want to see my... And anytime I watch an episode of Gundam X or whatever, mm-hmm. um, go listen to Around the Long Fire, uh, Around the Long Fire, a podcast that I do with um, M. Um, you know, there's also Pondering Pluton, which I do with uh, Connor. Um, we have an episode that coming out. Uh, if you're listening, I guess it doesn't matter which feed you're listening to. Um, Whichever feed you're listening to this episode in, tomorrow uh, there's going to be an episode of Pondering Putan that might annoy people, but I think is very funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, that one has already been recorded because while while we're recording this right now, um, Connor is now in Montreal uh, a little bit later than me. Um, oh, he's going to get engaged there, so I don't know if the engagement has happened yet, but um, you know, say congrats to Connor. I guess. Congrats, um, Connor. I thought they were already engaged. <laughs> <laughs> I they kind of were, but like not in the official way where you got rings and stuff, you yeah. know. Um, but in the way where like it's not like I'm gonna pop the question. It's like you both know that it's happening. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're planning a trip around it. Um, Connor does kind of give off like wife guy energy sometimes, though. <laughs> <laughs> like a little bit not like constantly talks about his wife but like a little bit um listen listen this is a safe space for wife guys yeah you're a wife guy i'm a wife guy we're all <laughs> wife guys around here um the 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 bigger ones that i want to promo the bigger podcast that i want to promo uh right now on this episode uh so if you're listening to this in the the patreon feed um this friday there's going to be the final episode of uh, Ghost Divers talking about Iron Bladed Orphans. Um, so, you know, check that out. We, we finished it all out. Um, and in 
like a week after that, we'll be recording the question bucket for Iron Blooded Orphans. So if people want to get in emails about uh, IBO, they can send them to ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. I'm just going to say it on this one as well, just to like really encourage people because I feel like we've been uh, doing pretty well in this season. I'm pretty proud of this one. I feel like a lot of people are listening. So um recommend people checking that out. It's going to be all done now. So, you know, people can just listen and watch through or watch and listen um, as they will. Uh, and then also, I believe the Monday after, uh, if you're listening to this in the Patreon feed, after you hear this is when the Chrono Cross episode of Emerald Mapping will probably go out. Um, my guess is because we're recording it. I, I forget if it's Saturday or Sunday. I have it in my calendar right now, so I don't have to hold it in my head. Um, but like M will probably, or whoever's editing it will probably, my, I think it's M and then we'll be editing it like Monday because it's a holiday. So, you know, free day to do that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, go listen to that. I'm pretty excited for that. Um, and if you are listening to this in the free feed, uh, I think both of those shows are already out. So you can go find them right now. Um, that's it for my long spiel. Sorry to keep you up. I'm sure oh, you want to go fine. to bed. You're fine. I do want to go to bed, but it's like, it's not urgent yet. You know, I yeah. did get a little nap in uh, a, a larger than I intended nap. Uh- <laughs> yeah, we would have been recording this earlier if you had a yeah, nap this we, long. We, Well... So the thing is, I didn't anticipate you being ready as soon as you were, but I am normally I still ready around eight thirty when I have to record remotely. You were you were ready like ten minutes earlier than I thought you were, but I still set, slept twenty minutes past where I thought you were going to be ready. <laughs> I do think me calling you is what woke you up. So yes, yes, yeah. that is true. This there podcast was a period would not have of happened me... if you didn't wa- if you didn't call me. Yeah, there was a period of me having sent a, f- a few messages, posting on uh, Twitter, being like, "Where's Autumn?" Um, and then I was like, "I think I just got a call. I just yeah. got to make that. I just got to make that phone ring." <laughs> yeah, the the podcast simply would not have happened. Also, I thank you because um, I didn't like set my alarm for tomorrow morning. So there's like. I work at eight. There's a chance I would have woken up on time. There's like a reasonably good chance I would have woken up on time, but there's a chance I would not have woken up on time because uh, I I have been severely underslept the last couple of days. So um, anyway, uh, enjoy the uh, lengthy non-homophobia zone you get. Uh, we'll catch y'all next week. Nanahachi is real. Nanahachi is real.
problem with calling even it. if you even if you shorten it uh-huh to the Moorcock spreadsheet you don't get around the problem of his name yeah the, the problem with I titled the spreadsheet I need Moorcock because that's funny <laughs> yeah and then I mentioned on the podcast that Nora and I had been chit-chatting about, oh, maybe we could do, you know, the great Michael Moorcock project, you know? And then it was... Okay, so when you say the great Michael Moorcock project, Uh there, it doesn't have the same effect. Yeah, see, if you say Michael Moorcock and you're normal about it, it's fine. The problem is that when you call him Moorcock. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, and this this is not... A call out post on my beautiful lovely wife i think i think she made the right call for the content i think she made the right call for the um uh you know like i i don't have any problem with nora putting this out there but i did just i called it i need more cock for my own personal amusement and then nora and i had been chit-chatting about oh maybe we do this probably maybe we do this i don't know maybe um, and then it sort of ended up getting like blurted out on the podcast because I was mentioning it in passing and then Nora sort of escalated into, if we get this certain amount, we're definitely doing this. And I was like, okay. Mm. But, but the pro, the only problem with all of this is that now it's like kind of stuck as a name mm-hmm. <laughs> is that like this podcast that we're not doing yet, that we may not kind do, of has by inertia. Yeah, and so like I could come up with um, other names for the podcast. The attorney, yeah. like, because there are you, other... you have to like, and you have to do it now before inertia yes. really takes in. Yes, you have yes. to like do the work to try and find something that's like a good name for the podcast. Like around the long fire was very nearly uh, Saga Gaga, <laughs> which is just like it's not even that great of a name. It's a riff off of Sega Gaga. Oh, I was yeah. all we hear is Radio Saga. That too, <laughs> um, but it was just like we we didn't have any better name, mm-hmm. and so in my head, I just thought of the podcast as Saga Gaga because it was the best we had so far. And there was a point where it was just like we need to figure this out now, yeah, before this sticks. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's the issue is that now I feel like the listeners are sort of attached to. I need more cock. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't help that when I say it, I do insert the space there where there's not. I can't say I need more cock. I I always, I say it, I need more cock. Yeah. <laughs> Which does not help. <laughs> um, But yeah, I feel like there's probably a good name in there somewhere. Um, uh, <clears throat> more cock um, has like... So, um, Elric is one incarnation of the Eternal Champion. The Eternal Champion being this like hero that recurs throughout all of his books. He Moorcock is also the person who coined the term multiverse. And so I feel like there's probably something in like Eternal Champion or Multiverse or, you know, the Elric saga, something we can riff off of. Yeah. The history of the Rune Staff. There's something that we can riff off of. Eternally Moorcock. <laughs> nope. <laughs> the Moorcock Ca- cinematic universe. Um, so there's something that we could like spitball and like play around with and get there. But it is just kind of called I Need Moorcock in my head now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to do it now. You got to come up with yeah, the name. Yeah. You got to fix it. 
Gotta. Four sticks. Mm-hmm. Glory on a pod? Glory, glory potta? Glory, no, it's just nothing. What about, like, people go, they, you know, they go to listen to the podcast, and it's like they're going into this little cozy space, so you call it the glory hole? Potty Castilius? Because he's got a a character, Jerry Cornelius, so, like, Potty Castilius? No, that one's nothing. That's terrible. (laughs) I like glory hole more. You're making it worse. <laughs> I just want I just want to know for the listeners. Can you hold up that glass for me real quick? This bitch has had about a third of her old fashioned and is looking a it's little not, flush. It's a spritz. Looking a little flush. It's a spritz. <laughs> I'm just saying, usually you hold your liquor better, but today you're like you're just like a little looser than I expect you to be after like half of a cocktail. I mean, I did have like an allergy attack today and take Benadryl, so maybe that's it. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Also, you know how when I have the mental illness and then the mic turns on? Yeah, I do know. Yeah. Were you mentally ill before the podcast? I didn't notice. <laughs> no. I was I was roasting your ass. Can I can I say can I tell the pod listeners how I was roasting your ass? So, <clears throat> I had a really terrible day at work today. Like, like, not exceptionally terrible because my job is always terrible. But I had a really terrible work day at work today, and I wasn't sure if I could do the podcast. And I was like trying to check in with you. Hey, like, what do you want to do? What are you feeling? What are you needing right now? And your ass was checking TikTok. I have never known you. To scroll TikTok. I've known you to look at TikToks that Emily sends you. I've never known you to scroll TikTok. But all of a sudden, as soon as I'm asking, like, hey, are you okay? Do you need anything? Do you want to record? Do you not want to record? All of a sudden, it's just like, hey, check out this monster truck. Hey, check out these. I I watched the monster truck. I I swiped past the monster truck, and you wanted to see the monster truck. I wanted to see. I, I can't put that on you. I wanted to see the monster truck. But you were like, "Ooh, look at this cat. Ooh, look at this recipe. I, Ooh. I do sometimes look at TikTok because Emily sends them to me all the time. And so when I get one from Emily, I will often watch it and then I will like scroll through and see some stuff. I'm, I've been watching. And I either like quickly lose, uh, lose any interest in it because I'm just not seeing anything good. Or it'll be one of those days where it's going to give me like the guy who teaches you kanji where he like draws the original picture and then how it relates to the kanji. And I'm like, oh, okay, Mm -hmm. this is cool. Um, Or I'll get the there's the lady where it's like everybody's so different and people are doing the weird cooking stuff. But I don't like her quite as much as the Mm -hmm. chef because the chef like just watches the videos and insults the like this is like so disgusting why would you do that why did you say that that's like that it's obviously not like people just say the wrong ingredients all the times in these videos and then it gets to the end and it'll like rate it as like two out of ten i'd probably eat it mm-hmm. so. um anyway anyway um i watch tiktok sometimes i'm just not normally when people are around yeah Like, while you are hanging out or something. I'm just saying that all of a sudden, as soon as I'm trying to, like, you know, just check in with my friend, you're all of a sudden scrolling TikTok. Um, oh, but, no, so I've been, like, on TikTok more, but not TikTok. I've been on YouTube shorts, because YouTube basically has TikTok now, 
like vertical videos, you scroll, you see like, you know, whatever. Yeah, everybody's doing this. Um, I feel like stories and Instagram is kind of trying to do this. I too think so too. Yeah. I don't know anything about stories, but I think that's just TikTok. But the th- the thing about it is, uh, I've I've uh, installed and uninstalled TikTok from my phone two or three times, and it just doesn't stick. I'll like watch it for like ten minutes, not even, and I'm just like, I'm just not finding any content that interests me. Um, but there's something about YouTube where. Maybe because it already knows, like, these are the types of video this stupid bitch likes. Where Yeah, it just, you've totally fed that algorithm. I've fed that. I have watered that algorithm. I have a carefully cultivated garden in that mm-hmm. algorithm. Um, where the YouTube shorts, like, know me a little better. I, I've gotten... My favorite uh, TikTok guy right now is Drew something. He does these funny videos that are, like... Because I guess he worked as a waiter for, like, 10 or 15 years. And, like, my job as a barista is not being a waiter, but it's, like, very relatable, you know? And he's got, like, he's got, like, a little sitcom cast of characters. Like, oh, when he's wearing this wig, that means he's this character. Um, And so it's, like, this little... It is, like, a a TikTok sitcom that I'm watching. Yeah. And I I like it because sometimes I'll see that on my page, and I'll just be like, oh, click that one, and now I'm done. Or sometimes it is an invitation to scroll. Yeah. I feel like one of the reasons why I don't, and I again, I look at TikTok some, but like not that much. Like mm-hmm. Emily watches TikTok way more than I do. Mm-hmm. And I think some of it is I'm just bad at feeding the algorithm. Like I go to like YouTube and I'm, it like suggests videos to me and I'm like, why the fuck would I watch that? And I just close YouTube. Yeah. Like I'm specifically opening YouTube because I want to like look up a song or, you know, often I will type in, uh, I'm currently watching some anime and I'll be like, Anil X uh, Tonya AMV and mm-hmm. I'll see if anybody's made an AMV of the current ship that I like in the anime I'm watching. Mm. So the 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 problem with the YouTube algorithm for me is that like sometimes so like the last week or two I've gotten into this channel on YouTube that like just that does these really nice videos that are like hey do you want to read every Batman comic that's been released since 1987? No. Here, <laughs> Here are the trade paperbacks and omnibuses that you need to check out. And it's like, you start with, you know, Batman Year One, and then you do, you know, this. They have this series, The Cape Crusader, which is all the Batman, and then they See, have Dark Knight Detective, which is Detective Comics. And This is the biggest thing to me, is whenever I see... I resent every time that I'm like... Oh, like, you know, the the fucking water dispenser on our fridge broke again where it's, like, frozen. What's the, like, best way to defrost this? And then you, like, Google it trying to find something, and it's just... All that shit is on YouTube now. Yeah, You just have to watch a fucking video. This and is, you're describing this, and I'm like, I just want an article that just lists... So this is the devious thing about this MF, is that this MF, if you pay him a dollar on Patreon, you can go see it written down. If you want to, if your plebeian ass doesn't want to give him a dollar, you have to watch a video this where is he. Why I don't understand all y'all who watch watch YouTube. Just watch YouTube. Just see what the algorithm gives you. As I'm like, oh, I hate it. I hate but, watching a video that could just be a like quick article I can skim. But see, here's the issue: is that I was watching this. Um, the, the problem is that there are articles like this, but this guy does a does a more thorough job. I think 
This guy just doesn't. Well, yeah. The other thing is you, you get these and then like the other option is you just get this like weird, you know, you get screen rant or you get yeah, like yeah. wiki how, which sometimes is good and sometimes isn't like. Right. You, yeah. Everything is just like the SEO is also just fucked up. Oh, totally, thing. totally, totally, totally. But anyway, all I, I brought this up, not because I really want to talk about, you know, the Batman reading order videos good. I've been watching. <laughs> Um, no, the, the, the thing about it though, is that, so like I've spent the last three days watching comics, YouTube stuff and my YouTube algorithm has totally emptied from its mind that I like cooking videos. Generally, I have not seen a cooking video recommended to me in like two weeks. And I'm like, and consequently I'm not watching cooking videos. And so it's like this self-reinforcing thing where like I intentionally, went on this other path, and then YouTube was like, oh, you have this one, you don't have other hobbies. This is your only hobby now. And I'm like, no, no. I just was, I was watching a couple of these videos because they were informational, and then I was watching a couple more because I did want to see this guy give me a tour of his bookshelves or whatever. But I do just want to, like, I want YouTube to keep feeding me, like, here's a little cooking video. Here's a little basketball analysis video. You know, like, like YouTube has forgotten that I care about basketball. And I'm like, it's the fucking playoffs. Why are you not showing me the basketball videos? And my no thoughts head empty bitch ass is like, I don't remember what basketball YouTube channels I like. So if YouTube isn't showing me those channels that I just don't remember. Anyway, it's rough out there. Should we start the podcast? Cause uh, I have work in eight hours. Okay. On some level, I think you're just in it for the gimmick now. I think at this point, you're just in it for the gimmick. You mean the part where we rate the stairwells? Hi, everybody, and welcome back to our Nate Stairwells. I'm Autumn. This is my old-fashioned. It's not an old-fashioned, it's a spritz. Oh, well, Emily said, get the old-fashioned glass, and so I just assumed it was for an old-fashioned. What is, what, what's a spritz? Also, this is Nia. A spritz is like a... Look here, and like sparkling wine, and okay, that is what you mean. Yeah, um, old fashioned is like you muddle like the cherries and the right orange, yeah, 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 yeah. with like a little bit of sugar, whiskey, whiskey, or if you're in Wisconsin, brandy. Mm. You're you old fashions up there. This is not a podcast about cocktails. This is a podcast about hitting the laptop. <laughs> Well, like, some of this ironing board now has, like, a weird tilt to it. Mm-hmm. So I had to put it more forward, but that means that the, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. It's jutting out more than usual. Do you want to take another run at that intro, or should we just keep rolling? Is this... Are we just in it? Let me just... Make some noises. I'm losing you every day And I'm losing 
I fucked it up, I fucked it up, I fucked it up. <laughs> it's too funny and now I can't take it out. Now I just have to live with this being in the podcast. Well, now I've hit record. Okay. Because I, I undid it. Okay. Because you were like, all right, my button, my finger's on the button. It's, it's, ready. it's ready. It's ready. Buttons up. hitting. I fucked up. You're like, buttons hit in <laughs> three, two, one. I fucked up. I I fucked up. I have nothing to say for myself. <laughs> do we have to like do a clap or something now? Well yeah, I guess open time dot is. Hi everybody, welcome to Homophobia Zone Part Two. Uh how's it going? Why is the stairwell's grade thing not loading for me? Ooh, I should open up the stairwell. Like it's like up, but it, it was saying like connecting or whatever. There we go. I just closed it and reopened it. Um, I have a thing I want to talk about in the non-homophobia zone, so we should do our clap, and then we, I want to talk about my thing. You know what my okay. thing is. It's the thing, yeah. the obvious thing. Did you, do you, did you enjoy the song that we just listened to? Yeah, absolutely. I know what song you're talking about, and um, I want to clap at 10. Yeah. No, uh, I want to carry the spirit of Connor and clap at 14. <laughs> Okay. I do hate round numbers. I I hate like this the oh I hate the circle. I I hate just zero. It felt Connor to to pick a number that was just slightly too far away that it interrupted the conversation in a weird way and also was not a five or a zero. Um, that just felt yeah. like uh 
a Connor clap to me. I needed that energy on the podcast. Uh, Connor's not listening to this, but I do love the way that Connor claps for podcasts. <laughs> um, what were you asking me about just before we? I said clapping. Oh, if you like the song. Oh, yeah, I definitely, I know what song we do just now, uh, as we record yeah. this. I'm aware of a song that just played. Uh, <clears throat> because I went and listened to all the hard work that you put in editing it together the first half of this podcast, and I really appreciate you. Um, yeah. I will do this when I'm editing this half of the podcast, but I have not done that yet. I mean, I might also be able to do it tonight, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, in theory, if we can wrap this up by 1030, I get, I can get basically eight hours of sleep. If we wrap it up at 11, I'll be fine. I also don't imagine. I was going to say, I don't know how we go to 11. I know us. I've met us. I know exactly how we go to 11. We just started talking about the outfits these girls are wearing too much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, should I talk about the two towers just briefly? Sure. So, uh, on the first half of this podcast, I said the absolutely insane thing. Uh, I'm pretty sure there were stairs in the Lord of the Rings, the two towers. I don't remember what they were, but there were some stairs somewhere. Um, And I'm sure many people were screaming at their phones. (laughs) Because, one, there are a couple different stairs moments um, in the two towers. And two... There's a big, iconic, like, one of the shots of Lord of the Rings moments that happens on the stairs, uh, and it's Legolas riding his little skateboard and shooting guys with arrows. <laughs> yeah. Those those particular stairs feature in, like, a four more shots before and after that. Um, so, uh, I texted, I've been texting you notes as I, so... <laughs> Listeners, uh, I rewatched the two towers this afternoon. <laughs> um, it's a normally normal thing to do. It's a normal thing to do. Many people, I I've mentioned this before. Like, I have a coworker who I've known for somewhere between six and nine months, and in that time I've known him, I think he's watched through Breaking Bad two or three times. <clears throat> Lots of people watch the two towers and then watch the two towers again the following week (laughs) yeah um but yeah i've so among other things i texted you um worm tongue gets thrown downstairs um they jog up some stairs to because the elves blow their horn to announce that they've got here then um Aragorn run down some stairs and embraces Haldir. Um, and then obviously Legolas does gnarly tricks. Um, and there's a couple more little shots of like people running up and down those particular stairs that he skateboards down. Um, and then <clears throat> laps, last but not least, Frodo is going to put on the ring in front of the Nazgul um, and <clears throat> Sam tackles them, and they roll down some stairs. Uh, so, yeah, lots of different stairs in the two towers. Sticking with my S that I gave uh, without remembering any of this uh, when we recorded the first half of this podcast yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um, other than that, my other uh, 
I wanted to talk briefly, uh, two tower stuff that I didn't mention in back end, if I may. Um, okay. There is just, we were texting a little bit about it. Um, watching it a second time, I, I could see your and M's complaints about this movie a little more. And stuff that we talked about yesterday of, you know, for you, you like the Frodo and Sam stuff so much, and Two Towers is really lacking in the, yeah for their story. Uh, I 100% see what you mean, especially on rewatch. Like, it really heightens that um, Frodo and Sam are just doing a bunch of made-up bullshit that doesn't happen in the books, and is not as interesting as what they get up to in the books. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um... However, however, the main thing I was thinking about while rewatching the movie was it is so fun to see guys stand around in sets and read lines from Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There is a simple uh, primal pleasure to guys standing around on sets saying things like, where is the horse and the rider? (laughs) Yeah. I have good news for you about the Lord of the Rings trilogy of movies. Oh, are, is there going to be more guys standing around in sets saying things that came from the Lord of the Rings? Yeah. It's kind of the whole thing. Man, you know where the great sets? You remember sets? <laughs> yeah. Not to, um, I don't know, not to do the thing that we always do on these podcasts of shit talk newer movies, but, um. You really feel how much, like, these are expensive movies from when expensive movies meant. It's not that expensive movies equal good movie back then. It's just that, like, the thing, the thing that was being spent on the money, the the thing the money was being spent on, um, was real shit was, you know, Oh, we got a bunch of guys, and we got horses, and we got all our actors trained, and we built all these sets, and, um, yes, there was a lot of questionable compositing of real world and CG elements, um, that doesn't matter, because, um, the things that are being composited together, um, are, like, a real thing on a CG thing, or, like, you know, two different fake things, like, mm, I'm not saying quite how I mean to, but, like, uh, the money is not just being spent on more and more elaborate CG sequences, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, it just, it, it's just, it makes the movie better. It just does. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, and some of it, too, is, like, I feel like there's just a real uh, willingness to to like scrap stuff that was done in CG while that still costs money. But I feel like it's just different when it's like a physical prop you built, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like there's just more like the money goes into a thing you're going to see on screen more often when it wasn't CG stuff. For um, sure. You hear all these like horror stories about Marvel previsioning every single moment of the movie before a director even gets involved. Um, and then like, you know, completely changing their storyboards. Um, you know, 
close to deadlines or completely changing a sequence close to deadlines um, in a way that, like, you know, when you build this set that Mary and Pippin have to run around in the forest in where, you know, they're drinking their silly little water that makes them grow and whatnot, um, maybe you're going to trim that because it doesn't need to be in the theatrical version, but, like, you're not... that. You spent enough time building that damn forest set that, like, you're not just going to, like, remove it from the movie entirely, you know? Yeah. Um. Yeah. And also, like, there, I think there's also probably just something about, like, a, a set, like, a lot of people are working on the set at the same time in a way that also happens with like CG stuff, but in a different way where it's not like the like directors walking around while the sets being built Mm -hmm. in the same way, you know? Yeah. Um, You're not like literally in the same physical space as another person and seeing how they're building something and being like, Hey, wait, I feel like all that stuff gets kind of lost. So, um, but uh, also, I just feel like it's easier to to point a camera at like actors doing stuff when you like know the stuff around it and how to frame that well. Yeah, you know. Yeah, imagine. <laughs> and I have like, I have like capital P problems with some of the like camera work of 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 that specific thing of actors, um, <clears throat> like how dialogue gets shot in this movie. There is so much. Um, close up where you have like an actor's face taking up like most of the screen there's like so much close up that feels like a little too tight in a way um and i didn't i didn't have the same problem in in the fellowship of the ring um there's it, it feels like um it feels like there are a lot of shots in the two towers where um hey, if we get really close on Sean Astin's face, then that's less stuff in the background we have to uh, render out in some way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, That is, like, a very present thing in The Two Towers. But with that said, you know, to your point, um, the, the bits of, like... <clears throat> the Two Towers does such a good job of, like, here is a shot that's a little pulled out so that you do see all this cool stuff. And then, you know, at the edges of the screen, you see like, oh, I can see like maybe a blurry in the background is like, you know, the desolated landscape they're standing in. Um, they they establish everything so well that you can just sort of like evoke it and go with like these really tight close ups for mo- most of the scene you know, um, and that's fine, and it mostly works. Yeah. Um, uh, I Anyway, I should rewatch these movies, but I have not. (laughs) Yeah, you should do it. It would be fun. Um, You you know what you shouldn't do? Don't watch the Hobbit movies. (laughs) Yeah, I've never seen them. Um, And I don't know if I intend to uh, remedy that one. I I keep remembering (laughs) that uh, M is not going to be joining us for the Hobbit trilogy, and I could have figured out a way to get out of it. I could have really, like, put my foot down and said, no, no, I won't, but no, here I am, uh, and I haven't done that, and I'm locked in, uh, and it's gonna suck. I'm not looking forward to it. 
Yeah. Um, anything else we want to talk about um, before we get into the proper show? What have you been up um, to today? I assume just work. Yeah. Just work. Watch a little bit more Gundam. I'll probably talk about uh, Gundam X more when when um, Em and I record. Although I'll be five more episodes in, so maybe I'll be back to where it's good. Um, I am told that it ends really strongly. Um, I'm in this part right now where I'm just like kind of down on it. In the way that I've also been kind of down on Gundam Wing. Um, I feel like it's a little... Gundam Wing has like severe... Uh, I the, as I understand it, the way that it was written was like episode by episode, script by script, without like always a clearer idea of where it was headed. And you can feel it. if that's true, maybe that's just a uh, like rumor or something. I don't know. I haven't looked into this. I think they brought this up on GGP or something. Um, but like, it feels true. Um, there, there's so much of like they're just trying to have the boys do cool things all the time. But without, like, clear direction to where stuff is going, without, like, clear uh, development of stuff. And there, there's parts in, in uh, Gunna Mechs that feel slightly similar, but, like, they have, like, a clearer sense of, like, characters and motivations and, like, a, a general kind of premise from the beginning to anchor it, where you're going to be, like, going around and finding different new types and stuff. And they kind of break from that as it goes on, but that's, like, the base premise. Um, but I'm just in this period where, like, the, the new type dolphin, um, the first episode, I was, like, willing to see it out, like, the, the idea of, like, new type animals is kind of interesting, but the second episode with the dolphin just, like, extremely fumbles it by, um, you know, having Garrett saying that he hates Subway, uh, it's gotta be the worst of the fast food restaurants, and, uh, you know, the dolphin being, like, in my, in my species, we don't have the word for hate. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the, the actual thing is like, uh, this thing about how dolphins don't kill, like don't understand the concept of killing their own kind. And it's like literally dolphins like murder their babies. Like there's like infanticide in dolphin populations. Okay. Um, so like, it's just not even true. It's just the most like, um, you know, animals are just like pure good beings and, uh, humans are the, the blight or whatever kind of approach to um, like environmentalism, which I think comes from a, a good place, but often like there's also this whole positioning of like human populations as just like a virus on the earth that comes out of that stuff um, that I think is like, has its own issues Um in part because of the way that it, like, specifically situates humans as being something that is, like, inherently going to be bad for the Earth. Mm -hmm. um, that there is no, like, other way for humans to exist with the Earth. Uh, you know, global warming is an inevitability. Um, but also in this way that it, like, uh, is buying into this original state of nature that humanity has lost. That tons of other animals still have where they are just, like, uh, good and pure beings. And if only we could return to that state of nature, which is this, like other myth with its own problems. Right. Um, but so that stuff comes up with the, the new type dolphin episode. Um, and then there was like, there was some stuff where it was getting good again. Um, it was fumbling stuff a little bit, but, um, I was kind of enjoying it again. Uh, and now we're in this part where they're, uh, at this kingdom. Um, 
And it it's finally where I'm at, starting to get a little bit more interesting. But there's like a prince who's like really ineffectual, and he has this advisor who's like basically making all the decisions. Um, and like war is breaking out between various nations, which seems like a good premise. You're gonna have like this political drama stuff. You'll have like some development with the king, who you know the prince who has to learn how to be a king. Um, all that mm. stuff has like room for fun things, but they don't want to give up like the new type of the week kind of thing or whatever. Um, and they're, now they're going like extra like monster of the week with it. So the, the Frost Brothers, which are like one of the recurring antagonists, uh-huh. uh, they get like three anime sickos and they're just like full anime sickos. Um, you know, where they're like, my whole thing is whether like on, you know, the, the purest thing of expression is like, you get into a fight and then you're either killed or you kill them. And I just want to like, keep doing that. Cause that's the, Ooh. that's the truth that I live by. Okay. Um, yeah, sure. and so there's three of these anime sickos that they like send at, uh, Garrett. And so like a full half of like all these episodes where I want like the political drama of this war breaking out between nations and this like ineffectual prince who like needs to learn how to be a good leader, uh, things like that. All of this gets, like, sidelined to, like, this almost B-plot position while it's, like, Garrett has to take out the guy who's, like, really obsessed with the color white and has the cool, like, lanky, (laughs) uh, super agile mech. And you're like, okay, um, I just don't care about this at all. Like, (laughs) um, so, uh, yeah, I've been extremely down on those episodes. I can see why. I can see why. Um, but now the three anime, at the point where I'm at, the three anime sickos are dead. Spoilers, the Gundam boy does not get killed by one of the anime sickos. No way. Um, yeah. Um, and so hopefully now that they're out of the way, uh, if they're still going to stick around in this like political drama country stuff, even though that's like kind of coming to a resolution, I hope we'll still get like one more episode or something out of it. That's just going to be focused on like that plot. So, um, I don't know. We'll see. I think that's when they go to space that it's supposed to get good. So, that, uh, but I only have like eleven of, episodes left. That is the way of many Gundam shows. I feel like. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure they go to space. They have not yet at any point been to space. That's um, crazy. If it, I mean, also it's a a 39 episode show that was supposed to be 50. I feel and like got canceled. So, I feel like in 39 episodes, Mobile Suit Gun- Gundam like. Goes from space to Earth, back to space, back to Earth, back to space, or something. <laughs> yeah, that's probably um, exaggerating, but that's how that's how some Gundam shows can feel, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like in a lot of Gundam shows, it's still like a big deal to go to space. Not in Seed. Uh, Kira will just like hop to Earth and then back to space and then back to Earth, uh, just to like pick up a mech or something. Um, but uh. <laughs> This is, fuck, I hate that show. Um, <laughs> but, like... Gundam Seed's check... Gundam Seed <laughs> catching strays on the podcast. But, like, I, in a lot of shows, there's, like, an entire episode that will be, like, trying to get the space or trying to get back to it. Like, there's a, a lot... There's a long period of time where Turn A is not in space, and then... Um, I don't know if you've gotten to the going to space arc. Uh, I in what Okay. It's, like a whole ordeal to try to get the space. Um, and I enjoy that. I, I enjoy when 
this is the thing that we we talked about. I'm not going to go into like details about the Iron Bladed Orphans season, but one of the things Connor and I talked about just broadly about Gundam, uh, this also comes up in IBO, is like the idea of the difficulty of like going to space and coming back down and that like entry into Earth is like a inherently dangerous thing, which is just like reinforcing the, this idea of like uh, the danger of Earth's gravity, like in a very literal way, like Earth uh-huh. will pull you down. And uh, if you are like falling from space, that creates like massive friction that can cause you to die um, as you like enter in the atmosphere. Um, and that like getting up off of the Earth is a very difficult thing to do because you have to fight Earth's gravity. Mm. Um, the whole like hard to escape Earth's gravity thing is reinforced by the way that Gundam treats going to and from uh earth and into space and all of that um in a way that again see destiny just doesn't and seed just doesn't fucking care about uh-huh yeah because <laughs> what are themes what are themes really <laughs> um but yeah i feel like the big thing that i did today and that i have been doing recently is watching gundam and also playing a little bit of tears of the kingdom um which i assume i'll talk about when i'm on abnormal mapping for chrono cross Probably talk a little bit about it. Mm. I'm assuming like everybody listening to this who is playing the game is just way ahead of me now. But yeah, um, yeah, because I just don't you're, have that much time. You're playing at parent speed. Yeah, and that includes my kid wanting to watch me play it sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it's still not the same as somebody who can be like, yeah, I played it for you know 12 hours this this like Saturday or whatever, right. um, which I'm sure many of my friends are doing. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I don't have weekends. These don't really exist. Uh, me neither, but for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um, should we picnic the hanging rock? Sure. <laughs>